Test one, two.
Okay, we're ready for the consent agenda. Could I get a motion on the record, please? Move approval. Second. All in favor? Aye. Opposed? Motion carries. The minutes from January 8th? Move approval. Second. All in favor? Aye. Opposed? Uh, motion carries. And we'll have uh, Nori Winter, who is right here, coming up. You're on. I've seen this presentation and uh, it was great uh, at the Civic Building. It was also great to see how many people came out uh, in the afternoon, the first day, uh, at night at the Civic Building. A lot of people from the community, a lot of people in the profession who don't work here, a lot of our staff. That was fantastic. We got a lot of bang for our buck in bringing Nori Winter out. So that's. Uh, all really gratifying to see that there's a lot of people who are interested in um, in getting the benefit of his yes. uh, experience. Uh, but why don't you go ahead, Mr. Mortensen, and uh, okay, thank introduce you. Yes, uh, my name is Paul Mortensen. I'm senior urban designer in the director's office and one of the leaders in our efforts in the planning department to achieve greater design excellence in, in all the work that we do. Um, so, uh, neither snow nor freezing rain nor gloom of the night kept uh, our visitor from getting here Monday night uh, from Colorado on flights that were being canceled and diverted all over the East Coast, uh, but he did make it. And he has provided us with three great presentations uh, to the staff so far, which have all been very well attended. Uh, we had probably about 60 or 70 people attend our first meeting uh, this week and then each day uh, we've had uh, uh, many other staff visit as well and talk. It have been very great discussions. The first uh, presentation that he did for us was uh, Tuesday afternoon was an introduction to what makes great design guidelines and an overview of the creation and review of design guidelines as a means of creating design excellence within communities. The second session was yesterday morning and uh, it was on design principles and the issues relating to different scales of the neighborhood, the block and site, and then the building, which was also very well attended, particularly by a lot of the urban designers in this organization and, and, uh, and the reviewers. The third and final session for staff was yesterday afternoon, uh, and it was on the review process and how design guidelines can improve this process within the organization. We also uh, reviewed a couple of planning department documents that we've already created for White Flint and Germantown, and so it was good to kind of go over to see what we've done and, and maybe how we can improve those. Tuesday evening, uh, Nori did a public presentation on design guidelines uh, at the Silver Spring Civic Center, as you mentioned, and we had about 100 people there from the AIA, the APA, the ASLA, ULI, uh, CNU, there's a couple board members even from CNU that were there. Uh, many architects, engineers, lawyers, developers, uh, and citizens from the community. Uh, it was a great, lively discussion. 
Uh, and it also featured a panel of um, local people. John Carter from our office was there. Bill Kerwin, who's an architect and the chairman of the Montgomery Historic uh, Preservation Commission. And then Karen Coombe Morris, who is a former member of our planning department and also just recently uh, was a commissioner at the Arlington Planning Commission. So it was great to have them there to sort of have a, a dialogue between the public, the panel, and, and Nori and after the presentation. It was a great, great event. So specifically, Nori Winter is president of Winter Comp & Company in Boulder, Colorado, and they specialize in developing guidelines for communities with diverse natural settings and traditional neighborhoods at the urban, suburban, and rural levels. He has worked on projects in 48 states for both the local governments and federal agencies. And from large cities such as Los Angeles, where he's working on the new zoning code for the city of Los Angeles, it's a small five-year project, <laughs> um, to small private developments for developers as well. He, has, uh, he also worked here about seven years ago on the preservation guidelines for uh, Montgomery County. He is frequently featured speaker in conferences sponsored by organizations such as the National Trust for Historic Preservation, the National Park Service, and the American Planning Association. From 1992 to 1996, he served as chairman of the National Alliance of Preservation Commissioners. Nori understands that design guidelines must be tailored to the specifics of place and region and that they should foster a higher level of design excellence and better public realm within communities so that developers and the different public agencies can better understand and implement design goals for the community. So with that, I want to present Nori Winters uh, for the talk today and I, and I look forward to the discussion and presentation again. And I'm on now. Okay. Good morning. Thanks, Paul. Uh, I guess I could uh, threaten you with showing you every presentation slide from the past uh, day and a half, but I can see Casey already <laughs> cringing about that. So I've tried to distill down to some of the, the key lessons I've learned in my career related to design guidelines and then provide some observations about the system here, if I may. And as <coughs> Paul alluded to the fact, we've had the opportunity of working across the country. These are all locations where we've provided services related to urban design and design review. Many of them are in writing guidelines or helping to set up design review systems. Others are in developing uh, urban design plans, uh, the equivalent of sector plans and other kinds of <coughs> planning documents. And so we've experienced how those uh, documents interact with what we would call the more formal guidelines along the way. The punchline of the whole uh, life experience in this field has been that an effective design review system must have these three features, that it's fair, predictable, and efficient. Fair in that each applicant, each property owner feels that their project has been reviewed on its own merits. It's not based on their personalities or their previous records. Uh, that it's predictable that the system, the process, the steps, as well as the guidance and the rules are clear enough that if I make a good faith effort to follow them, that I can anticipate coming out at the end with a project similar to the one that I've envisioned. 
and that it's efficient and that the time spent both with the developer and his architects and his team, the staff of the county and the public and the commission is used efficiently and we're not caught in do loops recycling and revisiting projects. Now, uh, that's the ideal system and we work to try to uh, help communities achieve those, those basic features. Some of the issues are balancing some very important variables. One is what we would call simplicity versus flexibility. A one-size-fits-all regulation is very clear, it's very easy to understand, but leaves very little room for options. A system that is very loose is very flexible, but not very predictable and very difficult for me to anticipate how I'm going to come out in the process. Somewhere in there is the correct balance. Also understanding what's going on inside a property line, but also what's going on outside that property line in terms of how that project fits in and supports further development in the area. And that relates, of course, to uh, property rights and property values. And, and I'll touch a little bit on you know, community value as well as the individual property values. So those are things to, to balance in the system. <clears throat> now it's always risky to show war stories from other places. This is my home in Boulder, and, but it was an important early lesson. We wrote the design guidelines for downtown Boulder in 1985 and part of the lesson is the sustained policy and the benefits that it has generated in our community. We're known for our pedestrian mall, a four block long residential uh, commercial street that's been very successful since it was uh, uh, created. But what happened was when you got to the end of the mall, things kind of petered out. And people stood at the end of the block and turned around and went back to the active retail area. And there, but there were several other commercially zoned blocks. On this parking lot, this building was constructed, one of the first ones after the design guidelines were adopted. Now this is a single structure that's designed to be articulated to fit the form and the rhythm and the scale of our traditional buildings, but in a contemporary way. The other thing that's noteworthy is that this is a 750-car parking structure. It's wrapped with active uses. Now, that made it pretty and attractive, but functionally it did something uh, probably unanticipated, and that was it extended the walking experience for pedestrians yet another block, and it energized row after row of subsequent blocks. Here you see a detail of that building and the scale and detail of it. And here it is in location. And to the left, is where you see the red brick street, that's our, our mall. To the right are about four blocks of commercial area that had redeveloped uh, in this direction, doubling really our commercial district. And we began to see mixed-use buildings such as these, retail on the street level, offices on the second level, and residential on the third level. Now that's about as intense as we see in our community. But this was a major transformation and a, an important economic generator. And here you see some of the new infill buildings. And that now is those four blocks looking from the edge of the mall. So it was an important lesson that a well-designed building energizes the street encourages other investment, creates value for others in the, in the area. Uh, we also had, a, two blocks away from our commercial main street, a corridor that was conventional strip auto-oriented commercial development, such as uh, the bank building you see here. Over time, as the values have increased, that area has redeveloped, and here's the intensity along that corridor as well. 
creating, a, again, a well-defined street edge, things that we aspire to, buildings that are articulated, that have variety, many of the principles that you have in your guidelines. Across the street, this building was constructed. And the message here is that this is a gas station. And rather than locating the, the building in the middle of the service area, the building was located at the corner. It's the same amount of square footage. The land area is the same. It's just rearranging the building blocks because now that food service building also faces a street and helps to anchor that street edge. And so here you see that gas station across the street from that corridor of buildings I was showing you. In time, the property to the right will redevelop and it will build to the street edge and the format has already been established. But there are a couple of messages here. One is, is sustaining policy, but also accommodating interim developments that don't quite necessarily totally match the vision and making room for those and how do they set the framework for future investment in the area. Because in time, the gas station will probably go away. The land values will be such that a, some other development will happen, but the framework will have been established there. We worked there with a format of design guidelines similar to this one that I want to talk about. And while I'm showing you a specific kind of form, that's less important perhaps than the, the idea behind it. And that is to organize information so that a page can be read at different levels. A quick read, a skim, or looking for the specific rules, and also having enough flexibility built into it. Now, what I want to show you here is this page addressing a topic of street-level interest, first has an introductory paragraph which establishes an intent, what the objective is that we want to have. It's rather broad. Under that is a more specific statement. It's numbered so it can be referenced in a, in a staff report. He can show an applicant, this is the guideline we're talking about very clearly. And or I can read the book at that level. But if I want to see what the options are, and the, the, the point here is that uh, there's a menu of options being introduced here, and it suggests different ways to meet that guideline of providing visual interest at the street level. And you'll see one way is to do display cases or uh, storefront windows, but there are other options that are offered as well. The idea here is that there's flexibility built in and clearly illustrated, but at the same, and so while the list shows five solutions, next year someone's going to come in with a sixth idea. Well, it's not on the list. What do I do? I move up to the broader intent statement. Does that sixth idea also develop street interest and help enhance the pedestrian environment? If so, yes. So that's what is built into this system. The other is that the illustrations are very carefully captioned, and here we even, with a check mark, tell you if it's a good example or not. So it's very, very clear when you're using the page. Some people worry about the length of guidelines and balancing the amount of detail with brevity, and that's always a challenge. But one thing is to design the document so that it can be read briefly or you can delve into detail when you need it. And that's what the idea here is in, the, is in this organizational structure. Now, many of these ideas are embedded in several of your guidelines, but maybe not as in the formal structure as this. Now, it's really risky to jump to some place with palm trees and cactus uh, as an example, but this is a place we've just recently finished a project. And what's interesting is Goodyear is a suburb of Phoenix. It's booming economically. And they have said that quality design is going to be our signature selling point. 
And that's a part of our image, a part of our brand. And uh, the, this, you know, it's raw land being, being developed. So this is not an urban infill redevelopment context by any means. And there's several conventional shopping centers here. But the one in the southwest, the lower left corner, shows the new trend, of course, and that is building up to the street edge with the parking internal to the site. Now, uh, what we worked on there was how to clean up and make clear existing guidelines without actually opening up the document. And so we created a series of appendices with a, what we've called a, a variety of menus. It was based on these fundamental objectives that the city had established in terms of where they saw the community going uh, with respect to design and, and inviting pedestrian activity and what they've called designing all four sides to receive consistent architectural treatment. In their view, there is no backside of a building. Someone sees the back of the building, and it should have some level of design, perhaps not as intense as others, but some level of design, which is very interesting. So this project brought in the, what we would call menus of alternative designs, clarified intent statements, and then also offered the ultimate uh, step for flexibility was to have a planned unit development, or they call it a PAD. These are examples of the visual appendices, since we weren't opening up the document itself that we created to supplement and help interpret the existing guidelines. And so each of these is on a particular topic, and it's showing a range of solutions that the uh, staff can point to and say, these are all examples of when we say an alternative material is appropriate, or how to articulate a building, or the use of other uh, design devices. These are all ones that have been used successfully in the area. Uh, the outcome, as I mentioned, is uh, that the city has, has been using design as a selling point, and this is from their economic development page. You'll see that they're touting the fact that they're the sixth fastest growing city in the country, and they've also won livability awards in, in the process. Uh, so it was an interesting lesson in, in uh, new developing communities also making use of guidelines. Well, what do those lessons uh, tell us? Uh, one, that communities do this because they want to enhance quality of life for their own residents and, and promote a sense of community. They also want to have efficiency in urban systems, that is to interrelate circulation and access and parking with land use, with environmental considerations. And often design guidelines can bring several of those ideas together and to maintain a competitive edge in a regional market. We've seen them in use all across the country uh, in a wide range of formats, uh, making use of staff and review boards and review committees in various forms and planning commissions, of course. Now, along the way, we also try to make a distinction before what I between what I would call standards versus the guidelines. Standards being generally the prescriptive elements that shape the basic box, as you will see here, versus the guidelines that tend to go to a finer grain of detail in terms of the massing and articulation of the building and may even go into other areas. These aren't all necessarily areas that the county addresses here, but it's, it's important to, uh, to sort of differentiate between those two sets of guidance that occur. And in some cases, both of them occur within a, within a sector plan. The other thing is to have very clear review steps and processes that people understand and it should be no more than two clicks away on the website. I ought to be able to pull up a chart like this to know how am I going to fit within the review process. And uh, more and more, a 
developer who is looking at alternative locations within a regional market is going to be looking at the website first to figure out, is this the place I'm going to go look at a piece of land or not? And these kinds of review steps are important in terms of illustrating that. And so here you see a simple design track that does not involve the planning board or the design review board versus one that does. And I know you have some different levels of, of discretionary review, et cetera, administrative review. Uh, but th that's important to, to map those out. <clears throat> Certainly what we've learned here is that uh, guidelines occur in two different ways. Some are embedded in sector plans and others are standalone documents. There are pros and cons of both approaches. <clears throat> the virtue, of course, a standalone document is that it's easier to amend it and update it, keep it uh, fresh without having to open up the sector plan. Uh, that can be accomplished as an appendix sometimes as well. You know, but, it, but there also is some argument that by having it embedded, you get all of the vision, all of the policies, et cetera, uh, all in one place. That said, I would still argue that even if it's within a single document, the guidance section should be clearer uh, and more easily read as a separate sub-piece uh, of, of a plan. Let's look at a couple of examples of pages. And here what you'll see is our belief in heavily illustrating in very clear ways. And a couple of things are going on here. This one is showing uh, different circulation and access and connectivity concepts uh, in a set of guidelines. And not only are the graphics generated to be simple and clear, the caption is written as also a part of the information. It's not just throwaway language. It is informative and generally it's written to be consistent with the actual guideline language. A couple of other illustrations that I wanted to show in, at the public realm level. Uh, this is a concept out of a set of guidelines related to, uh, in, in a sector plan, related to a bus rapid transit stop and talking about how developers should locate the open space they're required to provide anyway in ways that are going to connect with the public realm. And so here we have extra wide setbacks and creating a plaza coming from the BRT. Just examples of how to make more constructive use of the open space you're already going to be providing. Then quickly, just a few examples of other menus, as we would call them. But again, the, the point here is to show we expect articulation of your building. Here are five different ways to do it. And, you, and you're certainly welcome to give us a sixth one. But they're being illustrated here in a sketch form and in a, uh, and in a photographic uh, way. Uh, in some cases, the level of design of expectation varies depending on which street you're on, uh, whether it's a primary, secondary street, or what side of the building is on. And so here's an example of creating street level interest uh, other than retail in a variety of ways with murals, public art, uh, architectural detailing, et cetera. And that the intensity of it may vary depending upon the character uh, of the facade. A couple of other examples getting into more detail about treatment of wall surfaces as alternatives. And even buildings that are big boxes that have backsides or whatnot where some architectural treatment can add visual interest, particularly to those that are more visible from the public way. The other thing is it's an opportunity to coordinate with other departments and other disciplines. 
And <clears throat> this is an illustration from a set of guidelines in which the engineering department that was charged with low impact design uh, principles collaborated with the planners to illustrate good design solutions for what are technical engineering solutions so that these serve as amenities on the site while also meeting the requirements for stormwater management. A lot of them start with some very broad high-level principles. Now these are so broad that of course you can't necessarily review at this level, but they give the background for the guidelines themselves and I want to walk through this set of them that were written for downtown Memphis just to give you that feel. One, achieve excellence in design, which is our topic today. Two, promote creativity. State it right up front. We want to see creativity. Three, design with authenticity. We want to see real use of materials in a realistic way, not skimpy veneers. Uh, design with consistency within a, an overall building. Even if we're breaking up its massing, we want to see a, a, a building that reads as that. Design for durability. Use materials that have a quality to do that. Certainly designed for sustainability both in the building and site design. Draw upon local design traditions where they exist. And those may be very, very basic or they may be very, very detailed depending on the context. Honor the heritage of the city was important to downtown Memphis. Designed to fit with the context. There was a recognition that even within the greater downtown there were a dozen different subcontexts with different, where different responses would be appropriate. Enhance the public realm. Enhance the pedestrian experience, provide signature open spaces, keep the automobile subordinate, and in their case, celebrate the riverfront. So those were the driving high-level principles that then gave birth to all of the guidelines that followed that. But again, in a hierarchical structure, there's always the ab ability to move up to this level. If we're seeing something new, we can say, how is it? fitting our basic vision for the area. And of course your goal statements and your plans help to do that to some extent. Uh, how far do you have to go from those, from those 14 principles to go to a next step? I mean, they seem to be pretty all-encompassing. Well, each one of those then has a set of, of you know, two, three, four, five guidelines under it depending on, on uh, how you want to interpret it because uh, providing signature open space as well, what is some of the detail about that? You know, what makes a, an open space work versus just being leftover space? Principles then dictate? Yeah, my, a great deal of it. Those menus, for example, help to show examples of how, of how you do that, how you can accomplish that. Yes. Um, another th thing to think about in some cases is where there seems to be a lot of repetition, are there opportunity uh, amongst different guidelines documents? Is there a way to consolidate some of that into some overarching guidelines that apply to a broader area throughout the community? And so sometimes we will set them up so that there are uh, those, whether it's a separate document or a chapter, which applies throughout the which apply throughout the area. And then there may be some specific for sub areas, but that way those can be more limited uh, and briefer because you don't have to repeat all of those general guidelines over and over again for every sector, for example. Uh, and then we recommend the use of case studies where it illustrates how when you meet guidelines addressing all of those different principles, what does a project look like as opposed to looking at the individual parts of the elephant 
seeing how, how it comes together. Another key concept is to address phasing and to have, uh, understand that there will be projects that uh, don't necessarily fit the full vision straight out of the can. And so this is a, an example out of a set of guidelines of an existing strip-oriented big box commercial center with a few pad sites in front. An interim development where a lot of that remains the same but some liner buildings begin to show up, some smaller clusters of structures appear in the front, and then a later full redevelopment. And there is text along the way explaining what's going on there and what some of those interim steps are. And there are varieties of ways of, of addressing that. Here's an example then of taking that as a case study to illustrate how all of a variety of guidelines in the document are, uh, are brought into play in this project. And, and so that the overall vision is very clear along the way. So with those lessons learned, we looked at several of the ones that the county has created. And a lot of what I'm talking about is in these documents, sometimes perhaps not as formatted as strongly as, as uh, I've suggested. But there, for example, here in White Flint, there are some very uh, clear design objectives that are laid out that are quite similar to uh, some of those broader principles that I illustrated with, with some suggestions. And even in some cases, those illustrations of alternative solutions. Uh, and so this is an example of three different ways of dealing with structured parking, for example. Or understanding that a tower and a podium arrangement actually has different flavors. And this page is showing five different scenarios. And of course the implication is that there's a sixth option out there someplace. But it at least begins to illustrate that idea that there's more than one way to skin the cat. Finally, in terms of celebrating design excellence, once people have done a good job, not only do you want to use their project in your next set of guidelines as an example, but put it out there on the web. And I think one of the most interesting ones is uh, this website from Seattle, which of course has, has uh, established a reputation for promoting excellence in design. So there's actually a, a page a uh, on design review, and when you get to that page, you see that there's also a hot link to some great examples of design projects that have gone through the process. And when you click on that, you get several projects you can look at. So let's look at the Greenfire Campus, and we're going to click on that one. And we get some photographs and some of the submittal documents of what that project was designed to look like. And with each of these images, there's background information. So when I click on this image, I actually see the square footage, et cetera, but I also see which guidelines it met or what that photograph exemplifies in terms of the guidelines. So it's an educational tool, it's a celebratory tool, and it's a pat on the back for that developer uh, to say, we've been acknowledged in the city's website for design excellence. Uh, so what does all this mean? Uh, from, from our perspective, it's to keep the objectives in mind, the big broad objectives, and think for the long term. What we've seen now is the power of guidelines over time. Sometimes when you're looking at a project today, it's hard to envision how that's going to fit in 
20 or 30 years from now, but you are helping to set that climate for investment, to work with the guidelines that you've adopted. Your role is to help administer policy that has been adopted. Within that, there's room for flexibility and the way the language is written uh, to, to address uh, changing circumstances. And to maintain the system. You don't just set it up and let it run on automatic. Maintenance means training for the commission, for the staff, uh, updating the tools that are in use all along the way, that there needs to be a real commitment to that. <coughs> a few specifics uh, to consider. Uh, one is, of course, to strive to be consistent in your decision making and to cite the guidelines in your, in your decisions. And I'm sure you do that, and of course your staff reports help you to do that. In that respect, to support the staff's role, one of the most important things that we've seen in these systems is to encourage staff to try to do their job well. And even when you disagree with them, don't shout them down or discourage them from coming forward the next time with a suggestion. You certainly may disagree with them. You certainly may not accept their report. But you want to always encourage them to be doing their best in their job and bringing forward ideas to you. Uh, another option might be, which we've seen used with great success, is a design advisory committee. It's not a regulatory body, but it's a, uh, often a group of, of designers and professionals in the field that can provide a real-world perspective to staff and to the commission. And they can help in interpreting the guidelines and in highlighting what new trends are and, and bringing reality to, you know, well, the floor plate height is really now going to be 15 feet and, and you know, we need to look at that or th this is why that applicant is coming in with a, a, a some deviation from the normal standard. Uh, another is to look at refining the structural organization of the guidelines. Now, a lot of them are already in place and I'm not suggesting you, you uh, start from scratch. Uh, and we've already talked with staff about how they can work with the language they have to use it more in a hierarchical structure, if you will. But there might be opportunities for adding some appendices to clarify interpretation and inflexibility that's already uh, built into the system. And certainly to look at some of the organizational structure of guidelines as new ones are developed. Uh, along that line, I'd certainly recommend that hierarchical system I've, I've been showing you, which is you have some level of policies, you then have some intent statements related to specific design topics, and then you have the specific guidelines themselves with supplemental information. Um, and then, as I had shown with Seattle, to celebrate the design successes in a variety of ways, awards, publicity, websites, etc. Uh, and to be certain that you're always anchoring those more specific guidelines with those higher level principles that are going to last over, over time. So those are uh, my experiences and my quick observations on the design review system here in the county. And be pleased to answer any questions you might have. The, the one area that uh, I think affects us a lot is the existing strip centers or your example of a gas station or where there isn't quite enough uh, economic incentive to redo the center, but mm -hmm. it's, um, it needs, when they want to uh, do a part of uh, the improvement, whether the guidelines would enable them to do step one in your examples, like moving the convenience part of the gas station to the front of the site 
but still basically the gas station stayed the way it is, but you've created a better facade or that shopping center that you, sh you, you show. Right. Um, because when we're in a new, totally redevelopable area like Whiteland, it's relatively easy. But when you're out further out and there isn't enough economic incentive yet, yep. uh, you don't want it to stay the way it is. So the guidelines, I think, have to accommodate the interim, and I don't know if you've looked at our guidelines in, in maybe in a little more suburban areas, uh, whether they can accommodate that kind we of. We uh, talked about that some with staff uh, over the past couple of days, and I, and I think we would all agree that right now those baby steps are missing as illustrations, as, as examples, and the implication is that you've got to jump to the end scenario. Uh, and so that's an area where some supplemental uh, imagery even in an appendix, would be helpful to do some case studies of here's here's how to move forward the the vision, but also work incrementally. But to dorm, I'm sorry. I just wanted to ask, adding on to your question, to get an understanding of how do you how do you determine what is enough? I mean, a baby step is a baby step, but can someone get the benefit of whatever that zoning is? You know, how do you say you? Well, if you, if you had a strip center, with the one that was illustrated is somewhat not typical because it had a lot of space between the strip and the street. So you had a lot of room to create a little, a little street uh, frontage. Mm -hmm. In most cases, there's just enough for maybe a row of out parcels that might now create a, a walking opportunity within the center to go from store to store instead of driving from the yes. supermarket to the yes to the other end of the bank so so there is that interim step and it would be nice to be able to encourage those people who have strip centers which is the majority of our county to do some development that improves the, the or moves it towards a, a more accommodating plan but um, not wait till you have to knock the whole that's center right. down and make it work that's right exactly uh, so I, I I think in the past we have some very specific things about how the buildings are supposed to be and and parking and and really you can't go the full full step because the center can't uh, can't eliminate what's right. commercially acceptable now right. and go the full full boat so they don't do anything right. and so it would be nice to be able to let them go part way and improve the the environment do and then and then go the rest of the way. Well, on that point, do you think that it would be we usually have design guidelines that are uh, approved by the board, not and the, the recent trend has been to avoid putting them in the actual plan because of recent uh, court interpretations that uh, say if it's in the plan, it's got the force of law. So we're trying to keep it out of the plan so we can retain some flexibility, and also if it's if it's whether it's in the plan or not to use language like should as opposed to must to, to preserve that, like what you said about, you know, illustrative versus mandatory, uh, you know, specifications of intent statements. Uh, but do you think that it would be useful on this point to have uh, guideline documents which were not tied to a specific <coughs> geographic area plan but were tied to situations like this you know, maybe there should be a strip center redevelopment guidelines document, which is not adopted as part of a master plan, and it wouldn't be <coughs> mandatory. We're not, like, adopting it as a new part of the zoning code, but to be a standing document to hand out to 
applicants and say, if you have a strip center and you want to uh, intensify or redevelop development on part of it or mm -hmm. redevelop, you should have, you, this is what we're looking for. Mm -hmm. Is that, have you, is that approach been taken in other places and especially in suburban jurisdictions? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, there, there, well, there's several ideas there, I think, in, in your statement. I mean, one is uh, <coughs> there are many communities who do write guidelines by building type or property type or zoning category as opposed to geographically defined areas as opposed to being linked to the plans the way, the way you do it. Uh, and, and so in that case, anything that's zoned, you know, whatever that low level of commercial intensity, there might be a guideline document that addresses that wherever it exists. Now the <coughs> downside of that is even within a certain land use category, the context may be different. And it's certainly in a county of this scale, that's going to be the case. So I'm not sure that it's universal as a regulatory document. Um, but as an informational document of case studies of these are ways, these are design solutions that could inform wherever the guidelines, the formal guidelines are housed, that kind of supplemental document could inform that uh, process. So you might think of that, I mean, in a couple of ways there uh, as of how it might be used. And if the guidelines are published as a separate document, and I think it's still important that they be very clearly linked to to the sector plan. I mean, there is a, a sort of a food chain of, 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 of regulation and enforcement and application of those guidelines that you want to be certain is connected to the to the sector plan, even if it is published as a as a separate document. Could you, could you uh, talk a little bit about historic preservation and how do you handle uh, areas that are redeveloping that have historic structures and how do you do those guidelines in such a way that encourages the redevelopment but also has uh, an element of preservation of the uh, of the structures and uh, doesn't get in a real war between the developer and the community. Well, that's a that's a real good question because we do <coughs> develop <coughs> quite a few preservation guidelines. I'm recovering from cold, so I have to wet my whistle here periodically. Um, and of course, for a formal designated property and or a historic district, you have your separate HPC process. But there are lots of cases where in that strip development, there is one building of historic value and merit. And it doesn't sit up at the street edge where, where the new plan calls for everything to be. And how do you, you know, uh, so that in itself suggests that in that case, some degree of flexibility in the way in which that property redevelops needs to be afforded in order to incentivize the, the preservation of that of that building. And so the guidelines may talk about certainly uh, at a site plan standpoint, respecting that, the siting of that building in any new development and incorporating it in a positive way. Uh, it may include some incentives that it may relate to increased density or other kinds of, of uh, options as an encouragement, especially for those that are not formally landmarked. And I think that's what you're mostly, mostly talking about. Uh, and so there are, uh, there are many cases where, uh, as a reward, some flexibility, either increased floor area or flexibility in site design requirements is afforded because you're saving that historic structure. It may relate to your, your ability to deal with parking 
uh, a, a waiver of parking requirements, for example, may be a part of it, or, or reduction in landscape requirements as a, as a means of accommodating that. Those are often used. Um, one tension we have a lot is in uh, with uh, developers, especially uh, you know merchant builders who are going to uh, develop a property and flip it, is that they say, you know, come on, we you know we're ready to go. This is good for the county. Don't get in our way. Stop it with all the pesky nonsense about your yeah. you know your fly specking our project with all your you know, aesthetic considerations. Sure. And one of the things that was striking about your presentation the other night that I guess is obvious, but really I, I thought was very helpful, and also in the thing you showed with the uh, Pearl Street, is the idea that design guidelines and design excellence add value to the other, not just to the community generally, but to other properties. Right. And that it creates the, poten it creates the potential to realize value that wasn't there before for future redevelopment. And I wonder, have you explicitly tried to build a constituency in the communities where you're, you've been asked to come in and produce some guidelines in order to you know, push back against this idea, well, we don't need all this design review because it's just gonna get in the way. What's the, what success or failure have you had in persuading the real estate community that it's in their enlightened self-interest to support a heightened l level of expectations <coughs> as embodied in regulatory processes or in, in guidelines that they should buy into this because it's good for them since if the guy next to the next door builds something that's hideous, it's, it's unhelpful to their uh, fu uh, future development potential. Well, yeah, a, a couple of things. One is certainly in the process, uh, representatives of the design and development community should be engaged in developing the guidelines and focus groups and other kind of working sessions. Uh, certainly in public workshops, but there's a technical level of discussion often that needs to occur so that they have been heard uh, and that may relate to costs of construction or building construction types. Uh, and, and an example is, uh, you know, there in, in the in the building codes, there's a change in construction requirements at a certain height level. Uh, typically, it's at five stories or maybe somewhere in between there, depending on the, the region's codes. And um, if I'm going to build above that, the next increment may be three floors more before it's profitable. So if five is, one, is the level of one type of construction, the next building height is really eight, feet, uh, eight stories or nine. If I set a height limit at seven, I'm not going to see it. I'm going to see five. And so that kind of information comes forward in those kinds of technical discussions. In that body, first of all, you look for the kinds of developers you want to be seeing in your community. And it's kind of a recruitment tool. While they're helping you come up with some of the ideas, they're also looking around and saying, oh, well, you know, here's some opportunity that I hadn't been thinking about. Um, but it also means that they have to at least acknowledge that it's based on some sound science, if you will, in terms of the construction industries, what some of those guidelines are, are, are illustrating. The other part is, I mean, there are often, uh, we will run some case studies where we run the economics on them. We'll have, we'll have a, a, an economics consultant run, a, run pro formas 
and doing do some what if scenarios. So it's not just a picture. We can say, you know, the yield on this is X, Y, and Z, and uh, you know, there it is. And the cost of construction of using these materials and these design yeah, features yeah. is not uh, prohibitive or right. material to the cost of the project. Right. That's um, in, that's interesting. We just um, rezoned a good part of the county with the new zoning ordinance, and um, we haven't had many cases where properties that were C1 or C2 were now, have, now have a new zone, and they're and they're trying to do some work in their centers to to change it. Uh, but we have had one case that we're in a, a minor master plan where there was a big argument about the detail in the in the current zone versus the guidelines, and some of our staff took the position, well, it's not totally required, even though it's in the zone, there is some flexibility, and the developer took the attitude of, it's in there, you can make us do it because it's in the zoning code, it's not a guideline, and um, I, I don't know if we've sort of created our own box, maybe, when we pass the new ordinance to be very specific in the CR zone, for example, on some distances and lengths of buildings and 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 places where openings had to occur where where we think it's flexible and the development community thinks it may not be flexible mm -hmm. and they're worried when they come in there it'll get they'll get hit on the head with the specifics of the ordinance versus the intent right and I you know I don't know if we've we haven't had anything come in really yet mm -hmm. but we've had one case and it's already an argument so I don't know if you had experienced that before in in where the zone itself had a lot of specificity over the intent versus what you've shown us, which is more uh, intent and objective orientated. Right. Um, yeah, there are, there are some codes that are very prescriptive, and it's, the limit is 25 feet, and if you exceed 25 feet by six inches, you don't pass go, and, and that's the way it is. Uh, within even the rigid prescriptive standards in some codes, there might be a, some flexibility <coughs> spelled out. For example, if that's a setback requirement, it may say it has to be within five feet of the range that exists in the area. That's giving a little bit of flexibility, but it's still very, very prescriptive. The others are more intent-oriented. Sometimes there's a track created that we would call alternative compliance, which triggers the more discretionary review. That Yeah, the baseline is if you, if you want a simple permit, do it at 25 feet and get your permit. But if you want to do 26, now let's enter into the design review process where we have those intent statements and we'll look at 26 feet in terms of does it meet our intent of general alignment of setbacks or whatever it is that, that we're talking the about. The argument from the development community has been if it says 25 feet, even though we're, because they haven't submitted a site plan or a preliminary plan yet, um, and, we, and now you're saying while we're having a discussion about our potential zoning, um, we, want the, we want a zone with flexibility versus a zone that says they're, 25 They're feet. afraid to opt for the new zone yeah. because they're afraid it's too restrictive. Right, oh, because they don't have a plan yet. And yeah. we're saying, well, we have the flexibility, and they're saying, well, it doesn't. It says here uh, you don't. Good. So um, it, it's, a, it's already the only the first case that came up is already a problem. So. so that's back to that question of predictability that I mentioned at the beginning. Well, uh, that's why I think it's really powerful to lead with you know, fairness, predictability, efficiency, as opposed to we want pretty buildings, because it provide it sort of puts everybody, I think, a little bit more at ease that, you know, 
we understand from the outset, this is not sort of an academic exercise of trying to find the, the perfect design that, you know, after we haggle about it with you back and forth for the next two years, maybe we'll eventually get to something that you can build, but that there's, you're going to set expectations that are high, but that they're achievable and they're knowable pretty much in advance. So you're not wondering whether or not it's going to, you know, it's going to be like, well, this bowl of cords is too hot and this bowl of cords is too cold. You know where you, where you yeah, can get that. Yeah, and I guess maybe there's a fundamental tone I should have pointed out here, and that is that the, the system needs to be solution-oriented. We want to help you do excellent design, an excellent project, and a very successful project. You know, and we want to help you find the solutions. That said, we do have base expectations, and that also needs to be made very clear. You know, this is not uh, saying everything is is so flexible that you, we're not going to have uh, an expectation for high quality. You mentioned something the other night uh, that bears on one of these standards in uh, one of our new uh, mixed-use zones about uh, transparency, about, you know, the point is not to support the glass industry. Right. Uh, maybe you could go over that again for the benefit, of, especially Mr. Dreyfus. Because well, I think it, it's right on point to what he's saying. Well, and it, re it relates back to one of the earlier menus I showed of alternative wall treatments. Uh, many of our codes these days have adopted a very simple rule uh, because we uh, of saying you've got to have, I don't know, 60% or 70% glass or transparency at the street level. And we understand why. What is the intent? Well, there maybe are two intents. One is we want something to be visually interesting and attractive and at a scale that invites pedestrian walking, something to look at, a sense of safety, I see people, I see activity, et cetera. Uh, you might have a second economic development objective, which is we really do want retail here. But the fact of the matter is we're applying those codes well beyond what the market can support in many places in terms of the amount of retail that we can have at the street level. And or even in a building that is retail, once in a while there is a service area or something that's up at the street that can't have a display, can't have a, uh, a storefront. So if the intent is pedestrian friendly, then we can start having that menu of options. Well, I can have a storefront. I could do a display case, which, you know, has a wall behind it, but you have products on display. I could do wall art. I could do some landscaping. I could do architectural treatments. Um, you know, that's five or six, and that's a part of your menu. But it's still... I still, I, I must, I shall provide pedestrian interest. That's the requirement, you know. The solution is open for creativity, and that's the, that's the difference. And so what we spent some time yesterday was sort of trying to reverse engineer some things of saying, why is that, why are we saying that? What are we after? Have we stated what that objective is first, you know? Because then it loosens everyone up a little bit in terms of being able to look at what the solutions can be for that. So. I was smiling because I had a case where we had a sandwich shop and a, a yogurt place and eventually a radiology place absorbed their space in the first floor of an office building. So I could have a display case with like a neon skeleton that could flash and say, you know, to have my window display. Sure, sure. Why not? <laughs> Why not? Yeah. 
Well, I mean, there's just there's situations now where we're seeing. I mean, I mean, the 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 objective is absolutely good. We do need a more pedestrian-oriented environment for any number of reasons: health, environment, safety, whatever. Um, but I can walk by many new projects that have blinds closed on those windows because what's going on inside doesn't want the glare or the visibility. You know. Well, I, I think you've really uh, articulated really well that how to how to reconcile the desire for flexibility with the uh, desire for high standards. That flexibility should not be a license for whatever mediocrity a property owner wants to impose because it's convenient for them right. at the time because they have no imagination and don't want to spend any money. It's flexibility in service of quality and also being economically realistic yes. and being as uh, being accommodating to the economic development goals that we have in real estate development while also raising the bar and and creating value for the Absolutely. for the entire community Absolutely. as well as other property owners. example you showed of the parking garage that went the next block in Boulder, was that a public garage or private garage for the shop? <coughs> that was a public garage. Uh, the downtown had, had created a parking district in which all property owners paid in, uh, were assessed to, to, create that <coughs> to create that structure. Because, you know, for at least a lot of smaller communities and perhaps smaller commercial areas, there is a there is a, a gap between uh, the, by land value that will not justify structured parking often in the private sector, and therefore you, you eat up land with surface uh, parking and you get building space to park. Well, in order to create that urban edge uh, in that kind of a community, that had to be a public sector endeavor. Public owned the commercial, or the commercial was built around the garage and privately owned. In, in this case, it's owned by the parking district, and it's leased out. And what's interesting, and now there are four parking structures that frame the mall. Um, many of those are smaller because these are shallow spaces. They're smaller service businesses that otherwise might not find a place down in, in the downtown. You know, a dry cleaner's pickup and drop off, a florist, um, you know, and some small retailers and gift shops and things like that uh, have, have occurred in those. The other interesting thing now is that the land values have hit the point now where there is a private for-profit parking structure that has been built because of the, the density is now there. Did they follow that same model with the, yep. the exterior spaces? Yeah. Is yeah, that, is that um, reaching a point where the lease, you know, value is covering the, the cost. You know, going to I don't think it. Pro I don't. I, I doubt that it does. But it certainly contributes uh, to the maintenance and operations of, of the building. Uh, but, uh, but I mean, there are parking fees that are charged as well, of course. So, um, I mean, the the parking district does support itself okay. with its revenues. In fact, it generates extra money that go to other other improvements in the area, streetscape enhancements and things. Did they, might be sidetracking a little bit, I'm curious because of the structure, because it's unusual to hear that the park, that the governmental side of it is actually leasing, you know, and managing lease space. So did they create a separate arm, uh, you know, retail specialist or something to do that? How did that work? I don't, 
I don't know the details of that. Uh, I know sometimes that's a question co that comes up is are they going to be competing with the, with the private sector? So I'm, I'm sure they're very cautious did not to undercharge or anything like that. Did they actually own the site or they condemned it to, to, uh, to get it or? They owned most of it and then they just uh, did willing seller purchase of a couple of the parcels. Well, it sounds like a really good idea because who, what commercial developer is going to develop for smaller spaces like that, especially if it's not going to net a return, well, I, but if it's... Yeah, I was thinking of uh, Glenmont, actually, which one of our recommendations was structured parking and somehow the county gets involved because it's a fractured ownership and, and creates, uh, you know, what we've been waiting for for about 30 years, I think, over there. Um, and, and that solution is somewhat what uh, Boulder did with that one... The, and, the, well, and the next one was one in which uh, <coughs> the parking district owned a, sur a, a surface lot and a developer bought the adjacent property and neither parcel was big enough to do something efficient and so it, it was a joint public-private partnership and that is a hotel with uh, underground parking of which half of it is a public parking facility and the other half is the hotel's parking but it was all a a, a cost sharing in terms of, of the construction costs. Um, but yeah, no, we, they all have to have some energizing street quality. And I would just add that in Montgomery County, at least in Wheaton, I'm sorry, Silver Spring and Bethesda, we have done some of those things. If you think about the garage across from the Civic Building where the Chick-fil-A and the Pizza Z or Fuddruckers, all of those. It doesn't actually cover the entire facade, but it is part of the parking structure. And we have had a few examples in Bethesda where we've done joint projects with the parking lot district, like the Bethesda Theater Project and like Lot 31. Well, I. Uh for one, would be looking forward to hearing uh, in the near future about what uh, our approach might be in terms of managing uh, to, the, to this kind of orientation about design review. How do you, you know, one, one idea would be, you know, directly, how do you bake this into new design guidelines, but also how to uh, think about getting this sort of infused into the development review process so people are thinking in in these terms so maybe at a future meeting we should talk about that we, we end up with feedback when we have two mics on at the same time I, I did want to say that um, I'm I've found the last few days very very exciting and encouraging uh, we, um, I think, have gotten a lot of good ideas, and as you all know, this issue of design excellence is one that I feel strongly about that I've been promoting um, for a while now. Uh, I think Paul Mortensen and Margaret Rifkin, who are the team working on this, have done a great job. And uh, we'll continue to, to do a great job. A few of the specific ideas that I think are going to come out of this. One that I've talked about, but I feel even more now that I'd like to pursue is trying to have a, um, 
design advisory panel that functions much in the way um, Nori has described in an advisory capacity. Uh, and it also, again, we have a model in Montgomery County of a panel like this in our art panel, uh, same kind of function. I also think that our staff has gotten a lot of ideas about guidelines, and it's not just looking back at guidelines we already have, but looking forward, we're going to be writing guidelines for the downtown Bethesda plan. We're going to be writing guidelines for Westbard, Lyttonsville, the other plans that we have coming up, and I think we have gotten some great guidance, and we may even pull Nori back in occasionally to continue to sort of um, give us some coaching and, and overviewing some of our work. Uh, and uh, we also talked about in the regulatory process, one idea that came up at one of the sessions was really giving staff maybe even a checklist of things they need to remember at the very first meeting with a developer to go over, you know, some of the big intent ideas uh, and to make sure those are really <coughs> called out very early in the process. One of the things that sometimes becomes a problem is when um, we get a new application in and we go immediately to the details of, well, what are your traffic numbers and, you know, what's your stormwater management plan and so forth without, and then six meetings down the, the road, we say, oh, and by the way, we have these design excellence ideas. So one of the things that, again, may be helpful for staff is to at least have um, uh, a cheat sheet reminder that, you know, when you first ta start talking about a project, before you get to, you know, exactly where is your stormwater going to be and exactly, um, you know, how are you going to, uh, you know, put in the right number of light poles, let's talk about the big picture issues. And then the final thing is sort of the awards. Um, and I think that's something I've wanted us to pursue maybe in um, cooperation with the Potomac Valley chapter of the AIA uh, to do some awards for really excellent projects here in Montgomery County. Uh, you know, we've taken, we've dipped our toe in the water with our uh, design excellence photo contest that we did with our own staff. That was, uh, you know, again, a little baby step in that direction, but I think we want to begin also pushing that out into something where we start recognizing the best projects. So um, I'm excited. I think that um, Nori Winter has brought a lot of great ideas. He's really outlined, uh, you know, a path forward that's been very effective in other communities, both communities that have a lot of, you know, already developed areas that are dealing mainly with infill, but also communities like Goodyear, Arizona, which is dealing with essentially all new development and, you know, complete, completely from scratch. So I think it can be effective in, um, in a lot of what we do here in the county. And I thank, I thank him for for all the great ideas, it's been an excellent couple of days. Uh, yeah, those are those are good steps, and uh, also let's not forget the things that are a little more. Um, well, they may not be as exciting, but the, he made some excellent points about the other day about the use of language, and how if you write a guideline that says 
you know, what you don't want, it reflects a failure to think about what you do want. And if you use words like appropriate, it's a good sign that you haven't really thought about what exactly do you mean. And so rather than, you know, sort of punting, you know, when you're writing a plan or a design guideline, it's important to think that through at the time because otherwise how do you expect somebody to understand what it means 10 years from now? And, and to keep in mind that sometimes, uh, you know, sometimes ambiguity in drafting is useful to get to agreement, but, you know, these are documents that have to give people guidance mm -hmm. and provide the kind of, uh, you know, predictability you're talking about and that uh, I hope we figure out a way to uh, draw individual staffers' attention to those kind of considerations as they're writing plans and, and guidelines uh, in the future to remind them of the, some of those common uh, problems that, that, that uh, cause trouble down the road. So uh, if there's nothing else from uh, anyone else, we'll thank you for coming to visit. Hope you'll be back soon.
Uh, thank you. Uh, for the record, Gwen Wright, Planning Director, and this will be a, a relatively short Planning Director report, but we have a lot going on, uh, so I will uh, just go over it quickly. Um, first, in terms of calendar, and then I'm going to sort of step back and give you a little uh, update on sort of the big picture of where we are, are on a variety of projects. Things that are coming up uh, in the near future, just to make sure you know about them. February 3rd, the County Council is going to have their public hearing on the Aspen Hill Minor Master Plan Amendment. And um, uh, Chair Anderson is going to be there to provide testimony and staff will also be there to answer questions. Um, and then we expect the work sessions for those for that plan to happen um, starting sort of towards the end of February and into March. On February 4th, we're doing a uh, free screening here at the MRO building of a, of a movie called Growing Legacy, which has been prepared by the Montgomery C Countryside Alliance and it's about the uh, county's agricultural reserve. And I actually attended the, uh, I guess it was the premiere of it, and it's a, a fascinating documentary film. It really focuses on a lot of the families uh, who have made the ag reserve so successful, both families who have been there for many generations, but also uh, newcomers who have come in to start farming operations in, um, in our county. So that's going to be on February 4th at 12 noon here in our auditorium if anyone is interested. Uh, there'll be the uh, documentary and then a question and answer session. We're going to have our next Montgomery Matters meeting, uh, um, Montgomery Village Matters meeting, MV Matters, about the Montgomery Village Master Plan on February 9th at 7 p.m at Watkinsville High School. And uh, we had to not have a meeting that was scheduled for this Monday because of the, the bad weather. So we'll be trying to catch up and uh, maybe cover uh, a lot of items in that meeting. We may have to schedule additional meetings since the one on the 26th was canceled. Uh, the other thing I do want to mention is that we have on February 11th our next uh, session of our winter speaker series. It's the fourth session about a once in future county. Uh, this is called Creating and Sustaining the County's Agricultural Reserve. Uh, and again, these panels, uh, Royce Hansen's presentation and then the panels discussions have been I think some of our best speaker series. We've had outstanding attendance at every single session. We've had people watching it uh, you know, on the web and we've gotten really, really good feedback. Um, and it really, it frames the issue. It looks again a little bit about how we got to where we are today and it's important to understand that in order to move forward in a, uh, in a good and thoughtful way. Um, we also, and I distributed this to you all, we have a series of events to celebrate Black History Month in February. The full commission will be doing an event, but these are four events that are being done just by our Montgomery County team. 
and um, they're every Friday in February at 12 noon in this build, in this room, the MRO Auditorium. And again, you're all very much invited to attend or participate in any and all of these. Uh, they're really outstanding events. They're um, great speakers. They're, they're di very diverse activities, everything from music to lectures to a quilting bee. Uh, and I think it's a really creative creative group of events that have been planned by our staff. Uh, and I should have mentioned, and I didn't, that tonight, if any of you are interested, we are having a uh, Bethesda downtown plan drop-in meeting uh, that will be at, at the um, Bethesda uh, uh, Community Center in downtown Bethesda. And uh, again, it won't be a big presentation. It will be a a drop-in meeting so that folks who have been watching the progress of the plan can come in, ask questions, learn a little bit more about where the plan is. Our feedback loop, which we, uh, again, was sort of a new outreach effort where we did a lot of work on a concept plan but then specifically had a system for people to get back to us on the, um, uh, you know, through our website with a, a little not just give us all your comments, but a little prescribed set of questions and an opportunity for comment has had tremendous um, success. I, I think the staff told me we had over 600 uh, comments received through the feedback loop. And uh, again, I think that's another um, exciting way that our Bethesda team has been looking at moving the ball forward on outreach. How can we reach out to people who aren't going to come to you know, regular community meetings? How can we give folks lots of different kinds of opportunities to participate in our planning process? So I'm excited about that. Couple of things just in terms of the, the big picture that I wanna report on is that we have been working a lot on two of our most important issues in the county, transportation and schools. And we've had a lot of meetings. I know that Chair Anderson has been uh, talking to a lot of uh, our colleagues in uh, DOT, at the Board of Education uh, about you know these topics. But one of the things that we're going to be doing, uh, yeah, just to again give you a heads up, is working with Council Member Berliner's office on putting together a symposium on infrastructure. At this point, the date is March 7th, which is a Saturday, and it would uh, in all likelihood be here at the Silver Spring Civic Building. And we're looking at trying to create a way to, to begin the conversation um, in general on growth in the county and how we can make sure that our infrastructure keeps up with growth. We've been going to many, many community meetings and hearing you know, that boy, transportation's bad, but schools, that's even worse and we shouldn't have one more housing unit because our schools are already overcrowded. And the message that we've sent and the response that we've given at these community meetings is, you know, we have, growth is coming. Our COG forecasts 
show that by 2040, we're going to be up to 1.2 million people in this county. And if we don't figure out a way to manage that growth, then it's going to manage us. It's going to go in places where we don't want it to go, including areas that we've set aside for preservation. It's going to begin infringing into our single family neighborhoods. We need to make sure that growth is going in the parts of the county that still have some, some gaps and opportunities for infill construction. The other thing, and I was just asked this at a meeting last night, was, <clears throat> well, if we just don't build any more units, then, the, then that growth can't happen. The people can't come. And again, the response is, if we don't build those units, the growth will happen in Frederick County and Howard County, and we will have the traffic from that growth and none of the benefit. It isn't a matter of being able to say, <clears throat> we're just going to, <clears throat> close the gate, build the moat, and you know, stop uh, growth. We have to figure out how to manage that growth. And part of that effort. And on the, on the schools thing, it's actually even uh, worse because yes. not only will you be pushing new development out, but the existing neighborhoods will turn over. And what we found is the majority of new uh, students in the K through 12 uh, education system are kids who are whose parents have moved into these neighborhoods mm -hmm. in the last few years, mm -hmm. and the older residents are moving out, moving on, and uh, so even if you were to bring everything to a halt, you're still not solving the school capacity problem. In fact, it will continue to get worse. Right, and you're decreasing your tax base, which doesn't allow you to address the school capacity issue. So it's a very vicious cycle, potentially. So um, we have big picture items, big picture issues that need to be discussed. And what Council Member Berliner really wants to do at this symposium, and we agree and we're, we're going to be supporting this effort, is not just look at, you know, what do we do today and how could maybe that be tweaked, but to try to take a look a little bit more at the trends, the big picture, and think outside the box in terms of can we, should we be doing some things differently in a big, big picture way. Um, so I think it's very exciting. It won't be a symposium where we're going to come up with a set of solutions, but I think it will be giving us a, an action plan of things we need to be looking at, uh, especially as we begin our subdivision staging policy effort for 2016. At what time is this symposium? Uh, we, it will probably start around 9 and go till 3. We're still working out all of the details, um, but you will be hearing more about it. I just wanted to make sure to mention it, to get it on your calendars, that March 7th is going to be an important, um, important date. And as part of that, again, everything is related. We've had some good conversations recently about the co-location study that was presented to you by our consultants, I think, just a week ago. And we actually discussed that co-location study uh, with our interagency work group. Commissioner Wells Harley was in attendance at that meeting. And I think it was a good discussion, and, and co-location may end up being one of those out-of-the-box kinds of solutions that we end up with to deal with some of our infrastructure needs. 
So there's, uh, there's a method to our madness, and we are trying to, uh, you know, again, be moving the county forward. Um, we continue to work on our development review improvements, uh, you know, slow but steady. I think we're making some progress. We have finally, I believe, signed off on the contract for our consultant for the rental housing study. So you're going to be seeing and hearing a lot more about that in the near future. We're going to be getting our focus uh, advisory group up and running, so you're going to be hearing a lot more about that. We are very busy also with our plans. The Sandy Spring plan is going to have a uh, council tour this uh, Friday and then have a Fed committee uh, next week. Uh, Aspen Hill Minor Master Plan, which we mentioned, Bethesda, I've mentioned, West Bard, we've been meeting with a lot of community groups. We met with the town of Somerset last night and the uh, Springfield community the night before that um, uh, to talk about the West Bard plan. Uh, Littonsville, we had a big Littonsville meeting <laughs> just recently uh, to talk about uh, the, the progress of that plan. Montgomery Village, I've mentioned our community meetings, so we are really, we are out there in the community a lot these days. And all of this is going to be wrapped up in a very concise package and presented at our semi-annual report to the council, which again, I'll just uh, mention it so you can put it on your calendars, is March 31st. And we're gonna be coming to you all um, later in February with a draft outline of uh, the semi-annual. We've been talking with Chair Anderson a little bit about you know, what, what he sees as some priority issues to, uh, to bring into the discussion for the semi-annual, and we're gonna bring that outline to all of you so that we can um, get direction and move forward with finalizing the document to be ready for March 31st. Question, uh, on Littonsville, when, are, when, are, when is the staff coming here to present to us? When is the staff coming for their next update? Yeah. Uh, I believe they had a date in late February, but I've actually um, asked them to hold off a little. We've had a delay uh, through uh, working with our consultant in getting our traffic numbers for all of our plans, Bethesda, West Barton, Littonsville. And I'd like, before we come back on Littonsville, to have a few of the traffic numbers and the um, land use ideas pinned down a little bit more. And so uh, it will probably be March before you next get a briefing on Littonsville. Um, I, I have a question about the symposium. Um, is that a council? sponsored event or it's not the fed committee no the uh, council member berliner has specifically um asked uh for the planning staff to work with him on putting together idea? this event is that a good idea well we've been happy we've been helping d various council members on a variety is it of his things. district or the whole or the whole county well the symposium will really be the whole county but uh the issues, particularly about schools, have been coming up most vigorously in his district with the three plans that we're doing that are all in his district. 
West Bard, uh, Bethesda, and Lyttonsville. Is he expecting to explain the school system capacity system, or is he hope wants to hear from the residents about what they think? What, what is I think the latter. Uh, in terms he of hasn't heard enough. Huh? I think in, in terms of explaining the system, what we do want to do, and, and, and again, we've been discussing this a lot in planning for the symposium, is we don't want to do too much of the, you know, this is what we do, school facility payments 101, because some folks know it really well. So we're, what we're thinking is actually having maybe some uh, stations set up in the lobby at 8.30 if the event starts at 9, where folks can go around and maybe learn a little bit more about the 101 of what we do today in terms of school facility payments or transportation impact fees or so forth, and take away, you know, a one-page uh, sort of frequently asked question sheet so that there's a, an educational component there. Because what we don't want is for this event to become you know, gee, I have a great idea. Why don't we charge developers if there isn't enough school capacity to do a development in an area and make them pay? Well, you know, thank you. We've done that for, you know, X number of years. We, we want to try to go beyond what's happening today and think is there, um, is there a bigger uh, outside-the-box kind of solution? Big, I see a big screaming match of all the people that don't want things to change in their neighborhood to tell you why schools are over capacity and you shouldn't allow any more potential kids in the neighborhood. I mean, it, we, we well, know it would be just risky. a pretty, it would be a pretty difficult session that you, that I guess he's inviting, but I, I'm not sure that the whole county needs that. Well, we're talking you know, about background. what the scope of this will be and obviously, I mean, if it's his district, fine, but well, Ms. I, you know, we're we're talking about what the scope of the of the exercise would be. Uh, obviously, if a council member, any council member, asks us to participate in their event on a topic that's within our area, it's not our event. That's oh. right, not our event. But obviously, we're going to cooperate. Um, well, I thought it was a joint event of some sort. Well, you know, we're we necessarily are going to be providing staff support, but it's but it's a Roger Berliner event. The decisions about this. I mean, if it's a joint event, I'm a little worried that we should get Council Member Leventhal, who's the president, or and, and to, to sign off and say, you know. What Roger Berliner understands that he needs to talk to his colleagues about what the what this event is about, and we've talked about whether or not others might want to participate or not participate, but that's up to him. He He's, as the, an agency has responsibility in some respects for dealing with transportation and schools issues. He's come to us and asked us to uh, participate and to cooperate in this exercise. The, the, the planning of who's going to be involved, what the scope is, it, is it, that's, uh, that's up to him. Uh, we'll assist him with trying to work through some of those issues, but that's, he understands that that's his responsibility and I think that we're going to come up and we're well aware that these are issues that uh, sometimes invite heated uh, discussion that's not always illuminating 
but uh, we're going to work with them to try to figure out what's the best possible way to make it educational to, so people understand how things work right now, that they'll be allowed to participate and ask questions and provide comments in a way that's, that's constructive and helpful and, and orderly. And uh, that also we will, I think, show, uh, illustrate that we uh, do in fact communicate with our counterparts in the school system and DOT and other parts of county government. And that's something that people don't see all the time. There, I think that. Asking also the school system to participate. Yes. Yes, but again, that's his, that's you know part of his job well, is to. Well, you know the re reason I'm a little concerned is one of the questions I could ask is, and you were also by the council was, when you get direction from the council, what does that mean? Is it the council uh, majority saying this is what we want you to do, or is it an individual council member setting a direction that may be in opposition to what the council goals are? And, and we want to be careful that we're doing something that's well, sort of I, endorsed by the majority. As I, as I, not endorsing it, I think it's dangerous to as take I, as as I to, say, to carry a flag for one person. It's, it's, we're not carrying flag for anyone. It's Roger Berliner's event. He is going to communicate with his colleagues about whether what what this is about, whether they would uh, like to participate, and we're and we're working through that. So and nobody's going to be surprised by it, and it's not, mm -hmm. it's a, again, I come back to, we are going to be cooperative in, an, in a project that he has mm -hmm. initiated. And, you know, again, I think, I, I sort of agree that with Commissioner Dreyfus is, I think, the point you're getting at, which is we shouldn't be off on tangents that a council member might want, but in this case, you know, I feel very strongly that any of these events we do should tie in with our work program, should tie in with something we need to do anyway. And one of the things we need to do that's going to be a big work effort is the next round of our subdivision staging policy. And so, um, you know, although this is Council Member Berliner's event and it's something we're putting some staff time into, I think it's going to serve our purposes as well because it will help us begin to set the stage to begin the discussions we need to do for our subdivision staging. And, and not only that, but we have three plans where people I are, understand do, are all that. going to. I understand to all that. Uh, here's my problem is that we happen to have a particular council member who has a very reasonable agenda. Not every council member has a reasonable agenda, and we may be invited to participate in other council members' agenda that is not necessarily one we would like to. And so I, I worry about, you know, and I'm not naming council members, but there, there are agendas that may be very contrary to what you may believe, me, even what I may believe, or, or Commissioner Anderson may believe. And, and I, I, I'm cautious about responding to a particular council member Unless it's his district, fine, you know. But but if it's countywide policy, uh, when do you say no to the one you really don't want to do it for? Well, one and, of and the that's the hard. And, that's and the part I'm worried about. And one of the and that's a not point, this. That's a point well taken. But one of the questions which we're still talking about with Mr. Berliner is whether it should be a district one event, in which case it will be probably uh, Roger Berliner and some of the people who are 
from those communities, from those schools, PTAs, neighborhoods, et cetera, or whether or not there's value in, to, in, in doing something that addresses all county, in which case I'm sure that it will involve other council members, other elected officials. Uh, I have my own opinions about that, but we're, we're aware of that scope issue and we're still uh, sorting that out. And I think, again, Commissioner Dreyfus is right. We can't take on too many of these sort of unprogrammed items because then we won't get our regular work done. Um, for me, the, 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 the criteria or the test case is, does it have something that actually benefits our work program? Is there something that we're being asked to help on that in some way, shape, or form moves the rest of our work program forward? If that's the case, though, I, I, I'm persuaded by your argumentation that maybe we at least need to establish internal, you know, our internal house rules because it's not going to be arbitrary about which we decide to participate in and which we don't. Once you participate in one, then there would be the presumption that we'd participate in all. As you start to go down towards the path of lining out the, the correlation between that and our work program anyway, that, that goes towards it, but it still doesn't really take care of what Commissioner Dreyfus is pointing yeah, out. I thought uh, when Commissioner um, uh, Reamer came in and talked about his ideas, they were in the context of a plan we were working on. It was very appropriate to come and say, here's, I'm, I'm part of this team and, and this is what we're about. And um, it was it was in the context of everything else we were doing. This is Actually, we, we, we did that. He attended. Right. That's different than. Well, yes, I, I do agree with the point you're making. I, I do. I really do, and I take it seriously. But I, I want to come back to it's not even about the SSP. These three plans, schools are becoming an issue that make it almost impossible when you go to a public meeting about the West Park plan. I've been to them. And it's almost impossible for our staff to even explain the concept before everybody is jumping up and down in the back room saying, when are we going to talk about schools? And so we need to create a forum for people to air out those issues, which are legitimate issues, and address them. That is, I think it is maybe even necessary to do that outside of our public meetings around these three plans, because otherwise the plans will just be swallowed up in this schools discussion, and we never get to talk about what are we trying to do with real estate development. And with, and with the other things that we're trying to do to, to the ways in which we think these plans will help the, help the community. So this is a, you know, just as the Hans Reamer exercise was in the context of some of the things we're al already doing in Silver Spring, this one is really integral to West Bard, Bethesda, Littonsville, and I think especially West Bard, frankly, because we want to be able to go to West Bard meetings and talk about proposals for redevelopment, not all, not to have the entire two hours spent talking about school capacity issues and where are people going to go to elementary school and are we requiring developers to do their share and how are sites selected. I, I just think that, that this is a very, uh, if the, of course it's fraught with risk that the thing is, is becomes uh, unmanageable, but the contrary you know, if we don't do this, the risk is that the, those plans just get uh, sidetracked by it, uh, and it becomes the tail wagging the dog that all of our master planning processes become 
seen through the lens of school capacity issues, which is important and in fact essential, but not the, it's not the entirety or even most of what we're trying to do in these planning exercises. Yeah, I, I, I guess if I were in your shoes, I would have a conversation with the, ch the president and say, here's what's going on. Do you want to limit the scope or do you want to you want to go countywide so that we don't step on everybody else's toes to satisfy I, one I've particular area. I've, I've made the council president aware of this, and and well, I think he wants to know more, but he didn't jump out of his seat. And uh, as I say, I think that that in some ways is a colleague to colleague conversation that has to happen between Mr. Berliner and his colleagues, so he can uh, explain to them what his. Uh, goals are for this event and whether or not they want to participate. So I that's on him. And, and the way I see this is this is an event that he's sponsoring and he's inviting us. He's inviting the school system, right? And he's inviting DOT. So uh, what's the problem? <laughs> I think it's great. And, uh, and then it's up to him if he wants to invite other colleagues. That happens all the time. This is nothing new. And I'm actually very glad we're do that you're doing this because I was at the West Barn event and it's really needed, so. So that's it. This is great uh, advice and guidance on all the things that we're working on. And uh, if you have any other questions, I'd be glad to answer them. I, I do totally off the topic. And this is following up with a comment that Commissioner Presley made in our full commission um, last week, two weeks ago. It's about the website that we have. And honestly, I do think that, you know, we own the, the intellectual property, why don't we license this? And if you're gonna do that, you gotta do it now, or at least think about it. Um, so if, if, if you're thinking about it, it has to happen now, so. A uh, very good thing for us to think about, and we will go back and talk with our web team and uh, our legal folks and see what the next steps would be to do that. Okay, uh, thank you very much. It's time for, I, uh, can we go straight to this Carroll Avenue bridge item? Don't need a break. Okay, whenever Mr. Cole is ready, he can get started. Uh, good morning. Uh, for the record, my name is Larry Cole with Functional Planning and Policy, and with me is Jay Cole from the Parks Department, and we also have Maurice Agostino from Maryland State Highway Administration. Uh, this project is a mandatory referral of the Carroll Avenue, Maryland 195 Bridge Rehabilitation. Uh, this is a map of the project site. This is uh, Sligo Creek Parkway here, uh, Carroll Avenue, University, and New Hampshire Avenue. This is a couple of pictures of the existing bridge. As you can see, it's a very tall and actually a beautiful bridge. Um, I think that, uh, you know, I was thinking about this bridge a little bit. It's a, a little bit of envy because most of the bridges um, in Montgomery County are not that great. I mean, when you look at the bridges over Rock Creek, there's not much to look at. Uh, this, is the, this is one that's like equal to one, some of the bridges in the district. Uh, this is a picture uh, of the elevation of the bridge and essentially everything above the structural arches here would be removed and replaced. Uh, this is an overall picture of the project site. Uh, north is in this direction here, so University Boulevard is over in this direction. Um, the uh, hospital is here and the Sligo Creek uh, Center 
uh, rehabilitation centers here was mentioned in your packet. But this is a pretty small project site since essentially it's the, the bridge rehabilitation. Uh, we made a couple of comments in the packet in regard to getting closer to a, an ADA best practices rather than just meeting the bare minimum of ADA, trying to get to achieve as level a path as possible to eliminate uh, some unneeded obstacles. As you can see here, the, the proposed sidewalk comes down, you'd go down into a ramp. If you were just continuing around the corner, you'd come up, go back down again, get into the ramp and then cross. And if you relocated the sidewalk to be sufficiently off, uh, offset from the curb, you could just stay level here until you decided which way that you had to go. Um, there were two things here, uh, same issue here about getting it off the curb, and then there was another issue here just about um, smoothing out the curb a bit and adding a ramp, and I talked to Maurice, and he said that um, there is a future project, actually, that State Highway uh, doesn't have funded yet, but they're probably going to get funded soon, and it might even start within the construction time frame of this project. Uh, and at this point, I'd like to turn it over to Jay Cole to discuss a couple of slides on parks. For the record, Jay Cole, Natural Resources Manager with the Department of Parks. I just wanted to go over some of the park impacts of the um, bridge construction. There will be a temporary construction bridge that will be built over Sligo Creek to be able to access the um, northernmost section of the bridge. There will be um, construction access and staging just north of um, Jefferson Avenue. And I wanted to add on, and there's a, a temporary pedestrian bridge that will be built on the south side, east, southeast side of the bridge for during construction. I did want to uh, point out that was not in your packet. There's an additional construction staging area um, right at the construction bridge, temporary bridge, and in the triangle between Old Carroll Avenue and the bridge. They will be building a temporary pedestrian bridge over the, um, over the Sligo Stream Valley Park as, as a concession to the city of Tacoma Park to provide um, continual pedestrian access, although they could not build a temporary vehicular bridge. On the bottom are just some examples of what a temporary um, pedestrian bridge would look like. That bridge will be built um, primarily on parkland. We've been working with them to mitigate the, um, and reduce the impacts to parkland, and I think we're happy with um, the results for that. Again, this is the picture of uh, both Sligo Creek Parkway, which is a park road, and Sligo um, Trail, which is a hiker-biker trail that goes under the bridge. The trail will remain open during the entirety of construction, as will the road. Um, but they will be constructing um, construction enclosures to provide safe passage under the bridge for both pedestrians and vehicles. One of the other issues um, that arose was the detour around for um, vehicular access. The section that you see in the red of Sligo Creek Parkway is currently closed to vehicular traffic on Sundays to provide sole hiker, biker, um, and pedestrian usage. In order to provide a safe detour around the bridge, SHA has requ uh, requested of parks that we, we leave the area between Maple and Old Carroll Avenue open to vehicular traffic on Sundays so that can remain as the um, detour route. And that's all that I have. Uh, 
Do we have another presentation from SHA or? No, that's it. Okay. And you're here for questions? Okay. Uh, any questions or comments? So could I get a motion to uh, transmit the comments? All in favor? Aye. Opposed? Motion carries. Thanks for coming down. Just take two minutes uh, before the next case.
Whenever you're uh, ready. Um, good morning, Mr. Chairman and members of the board. For the record, my name is Ilse Victor Fay, Area 3 Planner. Um, uh, this is an uh, uncontested case, uh, special exception, uh, no issues. So the, my presentation is going to be very short. Um, this is a request for a special exception for a large group home for use as assisted living facility with 10 beds. Uh, the property is um, located at 8919 Liberty, uh, Liberty, Liberty Lane, 300 feet east of its intersection with uh, Falls Road in Potomac, Maryland. Uh, the site is within the Potomac Master Plan area and is zoned R90. Uh, and uh, referring to the slide, uh, the aerial here on the slide, is um, the area outlined in yellow uh, is uh, surrounding areas defined by staff uh, and uh, all of the properties uh, within the outlined area are in the Beverly Farm uh, subdivision. Uh, just for orientation purposes, Montrose Road is located uh, north of the subject site uh, outside of uh, this area, about 2,500 feet uh, north. And uh, also uh, Tuckerman Lane is uh, south of the uh, subject site, about 800 feet. Um, the property consists of uh, 0.38 acres. The property consists of uh, 0.38 acre of land and is improved with uh, 4,800 square foot single family home with a basement. Uh, it's constructed in 1955 and modified in uh, 2000. Uh, the home currently houses an assisted living facility with eight beds and nine employees, which is uh, considered a small uh, group home in the zoning code. Uh, the use was established on the property in 2000, that's about 15 years ago, and it's a by-right use. Uh, the home current, um, the applicant is now proposing uh, to increase the number of beds from uh, the current eight beds to 10 beds. The increase by two beds makes the facility subject to a special exception, and that's why we are here today. Uh, the proposed special exception does not include uh, any uh, expansion or addition uh, to the existing house. Uh, the added beds would be accommodated through uh, interior modifi uh, modification to convert uh, some rooms to uh, bedrooms. Um, there will be no change in the number of employees. There will be no change in the number of parking spaces and um, the hours of operation will remain the same, uh, which is around the clock. Um, and these are some pictures of the existing improvements on the site. Uh, the top left is uh, west uh, side yard uh, with uh, parking easement uh, that accommodates about three cars and uh, 
top right here is a deck that's uh, located at the rear portion of the, uh, the building. And um, on the bottom left is uh, the frontage of the house. Um, it's also the eastern driveway here that accommodates two parallel uh, parking spaces and we have about four spaces here, a uh, parking area for four spaces uh, in the front yard. And this is the aerial view, um, courtesy of Microsoft being uh, the property and, uh, and uh, existing home. And there's no opposition or concern. Um, uh, nobody has voiced uh, opposition to the application. Uh, there are no other special exceptions uh, uses in the area. Um, the special exception conforms to all applicable requirements and regulations and development standards under the R90 zone. The proposed special exception is also consistent with the uh, Potomac Master Plan. Mm, and it's compatible with the residential character of the surrounding area. Staff recommends approval of the special exception uh, with the conditions listed on page three of the staff report. And this concludes staff's presentation. I'll be happy to answer questions. Uh, do we have an applicant who wants to make a presentation? Yes, the uh, applicant is here. Come on up. Okay. Have a seat, uh, turn on the microphone, just introduce yourself. And uh, if, if you'd like to make a presentation or say anything, that's fine. Or if you're just here for questions, that's okay too. Oh, turn on the microphone first. Yep. My name is Jonathan Edenbaum. I'm the owner of Liberty Assisted Living. And um, I'm a, I don't have a presentation, but I'm, I'm open for questions. Okay, thank you. Does anybody have any? Uh, I just had, I just yeah. had one question that with the applicant, that deliveries are limited to four per month. Does that give you the kind of, you know, the kind of flexibility you need for goods and services? Yes, it does. Okay. Okay. If there are no other comments or questions, we could entertain a motion. Mr. Chairman, this seems pretty straightforward to me, and I uh, support uh, uh, recommend approval of this project. Second. All in favor? Aye. Opposed? Motion carries. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Uh, Chestnut Ridge Preliminary Plan. Mr. Berbert, whenever you're ready. 
Good morning. Uh, my name is Ben Berbert from the Area 3 Planning Team, and this morning I am bringing before you the preliminary plan 1-2012-0250 for Chestnut Ridge. Um, I do want to say typically I like to have my staff presentations follow along with the staff report. I'm going to break away from that a little bit today and present sort of the simple, non-controversial, non-contested, easy stuff first and end on stuff um, that I think requires a little more of the planning board members' time. Um, vaguely introduce the property. Um, we are located in Germantown, directly across uh, Germantown Road from the Germantown Mark Station. The uh, outlined area in red here is the entire tract area that includes both the proposed lot, outlot, and the dedication which they are proposing. Um, we are in the uh, Little Seneca Creek watershed, um, and they are sort of in the uh, town center west portion of the Germantown master plan. Um, as you can see on the aerial here, um, their total tract area is about 1.28 acres. About 0.89 of those acres is for their lot. 0.37 acres is for dedication, and then they have the 0.02 acre outlot. Um, currently, you can see that the uh, terminus of Waters Road in the cul-de-sac is located on a portion of the uh, subject property. The uh, rest of it is um, a mixture of sort of cleared land and forest. There's currently 0.43 acres of forest on this property. Um, directly to the west of the property, across Waters Road, is a uh, site plan village of Germantown West. The imagery we have is a little bit old. If you actually went out there today, you'd see a, a lot of apartment buildings have actually been erected. The site's coming along nicely. Um, again, across the street here, you see the parking for the Germantown Mark Station. And just sort of in the vicinity are other various auto-oriented uses, storage facilities, and you know, other sort of banks, shopping centers, you know, typical uh, current uh, situation in Germantown in this area. Um, here I've sort of doctored up the preliminary plan for you. The area in the green dashed outline is actually the original two parcels that we are starting with. The area that's in sort of the lighter yellow is the area that was already abandoned conditionally by the county council in their resolution 17665. The area in sort of this tan strip is an additional area of abandonment which the applicant has petitioned um, before you today. And the area that's sort of in this light blue is the area that will be given up for dedication to help realign Waters Road. And our last little remnant sliver here um, that's on the north side of Waters Road is the outlot that is being proposed as well. Um, I'm going to start with the Forest Conservation Plan. Their actual Forest Conservation Plan before you today is it has a 1.58 acre net tract area um, to include some off-site disturbance for utility work and for grading for the road. Um, all 0.43 acres of forest on site is uh, going to be cleared. Um, they did identify on their NRI FSD six trees that are between 24 and 30 inches diameter at breast height. However, none of them were over 30 inches and therefore there is no tree variance with this application. Um, and they have proposed to meet their uh, reforestation requirement through 0.52 acres of off-site mitigation. Um, public facilities, starting with the transportation section, they have uh, APF testing for up to 5,000 square feet of their fast food restaurant and 4,980 square feet of office use. Um, as you will see in, um, for condition one, to give them some flexibility, we're actually just binding them to the trips that that generates. Um, they are able to actually come in and, and submit to a DPS building permit for any other commercial or service use that falls within those parameters. Um, the use at the uh, site entrance would generate 234 
new total weekday morning peak hour trips and 174 um, total, it should be a weekday evening peak hour trips. There's a little typo in my presentation. Um, but they were able to get a credit for a lot of pass-by trips that were already on Germantown Road. Um, so the actual APF testing is for 123 new trips in the morning and 92 new trips in the evening. Um, that was what was actually put into the traffic model. So you spit out the uh, table at the top here. Um, as you can see, the critical lane volume standards are much higher than all of the actual observed and projected counts. So there is no LETR um, mitigation requirement. Because of when this application was submitted, they were able to request to use the PAMR guidelines instead of the TPAR guidelines. Um, their Germantown West policy area had no PAMR mitigation, and so there is no PAMR mitigation required either. Um, and the other public facilities, it is in the W1 and S1 water and sewer category area. There is existing service in the vicinity for them to tap to. The fire marshal has approved their fire access and circulation, um, and subdivision staging policies found that all the other sort of facilities, um, utilities, and whatnot are adequate for this development. Um, also, for stormwater management, MCDPS has submitted a concept approval for their stormwater management concept. Um, they're using a, a whole host of uh, permitted devices, including dry wells, planting beds, microbiofilters, bioswells, and silva cells. Um, to get into the master plan, again, this is in sort of the West End neighborhood of the town center part of the master plan. Um, property is roughly identified as the location of this red star. Um, the master plan then has sort of three broad categories in which its recommendations fall under, including transportation, land use, and urban form. Um, on the transportation section, the master plan designates Waters Road as Road B5 or as an existing business district street. Um, it includes sort of the curvature at the last uh, lower leg here to get the realignment of Waters Road with the new intersection at uh, Maryland Route 118. Um, and it also calls for a class three on-road bikeway. Um, the application is providing for all of those improvements and dedication. The only sort of point of wavering here is that the master plan originally wanted an 80-foot wide cross-section. Um, the applicant's dedicating a 70-foot wide cross-section where it's possible from their property. Um, in much discussion with DOT, all of the improvements that the master plan requests were able to adequately be contained within that 70-foot wide right-of-way. Um, and with some of the new push from the county council with the urban districts wanting to even further reduce lane width and turning radii. Um, staff thinks this is, is appropriate. Um, also part of the master plan with the realignment of Waters Road included the desire to abandon the old Waters Road right of way. Again, the county council's already acted on council resolution 17665 to abandon portion of the right of way. Um, since then, the Martens property across the street did an additional dedication to Waters Road, which we are now before you today asking for abandonment of. Um, in the land use part of, part of the plan, the subject property is partially uh, shown here in uh, area TC34. It's partially shown in here as just the right of way, and it's technically this little sliver of TC area 33. Um, the master plan generally sees areas 33 and 34 as one development area that sort of should form its own little neighborhood here. The recommendations for um, total density, including the 420,000 square feet of commercial and 400 dwelling units are to be spread across both of these areas. Um, 
this application before you is, um, as they've requested, is for 9,980 square feet um, for technical reasons that we will get into in a little bit. Um, Steph believes that number, apologize here, is actually, uh, should be revised to 9,634 square feet. I'll get into a reason for that in a little bit. Um, but it's, it's a commercial use. It's located next to a predominantly residential with some commercial use. Um, it, it fits in the overall framework for what was envisioned in uses in this area. Um, again, the third area was the urban form portion of the master plan. Um, the master plan recommended not only this be a business district street, but this be treated as a main street with multiple level development, specifically three or more floors, to try to help define the street edge and create sort of a building wall. Um, it also did request that parking be located in the rear and that any commercial uses have visibility to Waters Road and 118. Um, they were able to do some of that. The parking is predominantly sort of to the side and rear of the property and as a commercial use it will be visible from 118 and Waters Road. Um, however, there's a lot of development constraints that affect the subject property which sort of make implementing some of this including the, the total sort of height and massing that was envisioned very impractical. Um, it's a very small property. Um, it's very constrained. There's, as you can see, the WSSC force main, this whole area in teal, that would end up being an easement in which you cannot develop structures over. A large area of this property is being dedicated for the master plan realigned road. Um, and at least from staff's point of view, there is a, a zoning line that also comes to play that really constrains the ability to, to do a lot with the site. Um, so as such, staff does recommend that this planning board at least waive to the minimum necessary the conformance to master plan urban um, form section as allowed under section 5035I. Um, conformance with chapter 50, the lot size, shape, width, orient and orientation is appropriate for this lot um, given its sort of location within the town center portion of the Germantown master plan. Um, Again, the color code you see on here, the sort of thick red is the total from that tract area that we're looking at. The sort of dashed uh, red is the actual lot we're asking to record. And I've shown in here, um, divided by the yellow, the little strip that we're asking for abandonment today. Um, abandonment can be done by the planning board under 5015C2. Um, the, the area in question is a 7,189.7 square foot area. Um, it was originally shown on plat 24630, which was recorded back in 2013 um, by the Martens property to meet one of the conditions of approval that they provide their full dedication for all of their road frontages. Um, 5015C2 basically authorizes the board to do an abandonment pursuant to section 4958 in the road code. Um, the main provision of that is that the area of abandonment has not previously been in public use and is not needed for public use and that um, all of the interested neighboring parties, public utilities and other public entities receive notification of this petition for abandonment. Um, as you can see, this has not been used for public use. The only activity has been a little bit of grading as part of construction on the Martens property. Um, we do not need this for public use anymore because we are getting a realigned right of way as part of this property. Um, and notification was sent out to all the appropriate stakeholders and we heard no objections and we got two letters from two utilities saying that they don't object directly. Um, 
so staff does recommend that it is appropriate to abandon that section of land. Um, conforms with Chapter 59. This property, this project was submitted prior to October 29th of 2014, and therefore the applicant in zoning 7.7.b.1 could ask to be grandfathered and reviewed under those provisions. Um, again, any preliminary plan filed or approved before October 30th of 2014 must be reviewed under the standards and procedures of the zoning ordinance in effect as of October 9th, 2014. Um, staff has reviewed this for compliance with dimensional requirements of the RMX2 and RMX2C zone standards under standard method. Um, 59C 10.2.1 says that for standard method development regulations in the RMX zones that the RMX2 zone shall be referred to the R200 for both dimensional and use requirements and that the RMX2C zone shall refer to the C2 zone for its dimensional requirements but can use the RMX2C zone for its use requirements. Um, the standard method also states that the RMX2C zone shall be limited to a maximum FAR of 0.3. Um, this is where the revised condition to allow a maximum of 9,634 9, square feet comes from. Um, if you actually do the math of how much acreage that staff believes the applicant has in the RMX2C zone and multiply that by 0.3 FAR, that is the number that comes out the other side. Um, if, you know, going forward the board were to adopt a different position than staff on the zoning, this condition would not be a, a that would not be an issue any longer. Um, to determine the, the zoning of the abandoned right-of-way through the council resolution, um, there was six 16,236 square feet of right-of-way abandoned as part of that resolution. Um, there was no zoning that was shown on the SMA G887 adopted on May 18th of 2010, nor was there any zoning showed on the approved zoning map. Um, therefore, staff looks to section 59A 1.71A stating that normally all publicly owned rights of ways for roads, streets, alleys, easements, or transit routes are classified in the least intensive adjacent zones. And the reason that they're not shown on the map is that to in order to find clearly the location of rights of way, the official zoning map will not actually depict this zoning in the existing rights of way. Um, it is staff's opinion looking at the zones on either side of this right of way that the RMX2 zone is the lesser intense zone and therefore the intention was for the right of way to be zoned in the RMX2 zoning. Um, again, this is the official zoning map that was in effect up until October 29th of 2014. I've shown in here on red dots the boundary of the proposed lot. Um, you can see there's a small area of it that was part again of the abandoned petitioned area that was shown on the last zoning map as RMX2. Um, and then you can see there's no zoning shown anywhere for any of this rights way. The RMX2 zone located to the west and the RMX2 zone. 2C zone located to the east. Um, staff comes to the conclusion the RMX2 zone is a less intense zone because under the standard method it refers back to the R200 zoning standards which only allows for one single family unit for 20,000 square feet or some exceptions for some you know group care or other institutional uses. Um, it has much stricter setbacks including a 40-foot setback from the front building line and it's limited to 25% building coverage. Um, the RMX2C zone can use the RMX2C for uses and the C2 zone for standards, which allows for a much wider use of retail, professional office, services, institution, and multifamily residential. Um, there are no setbacks required, and up to 90% of the lot can be covered. 
Um, this is sort of the conclusion that staff has used to determine the RMX2 zone is a less intense zone than the RMX2C. Um, regarding public outreach, the applicant has met all of the applicable noticing requirements. Um, there's really been no staff correspondence other than a letter of support for this project from the Martens property interests that are to the west of the subject property. Um, here I do want to bring apart uh, or bring forward to you some of the uh, changes we've made to the conditions. Um, there is a, a resolution in your um, board packet. These are, these are already in there, but this is not what's in the official staff report online. Um, in condition one, the uh, reference to uh, AB 729 was struck and it was changed to the council resolution of 17665. Refers to the same information, but the AB 729 um, was sort of the DPS docket information, council resolution that actually did the adoption was 17665, so this is for clarification. Um, we inserted a new condition three, stating that all the structures must be located within the RMX2C zone portion of the subject property, for clarification, the DPS. Um, obviously from there, everything has been bumped up additional number in the condition numbering. Um, so what was condition six, now condition seven, um, Again, another change to reference the new council resolution number. Um, old condition seven, new condition eight. We removed the word temporary for construction of vehicular access between the two properties. Um, upon the applicant's request, staff does not object to this. Um, condition, old condition eight, new condition nine. Um, it's a little bit of a clarification. The applicant will dedicate 70 feet of right of way or otherwise indicated on the preliminary plan. Um, some of the area needed to construct the road actually falls outside of the applicant's property and onto a neighboring property owner's property who will be working out a separate agreement with um, DOT on just how much easement he's willing to grant to them. This is just sort of to reaffirm that you have flex, the, the DOT has flexibility to work with him outside of what the board does today. Um, and again, condition old 14, new 15. Um, we received an updated MCDOT letter on January 21st, 2015, updating some of their conditions. Um, there's been a couple of additional changes that have happened since the packet was created. Um, one of them is to, again, if you go with staff's interpretation on zoning, to strike the 9,980 square feet of development and reduce it to 9,634 square feet. There's also been some clarification on the limits on trips that these 123 and 92 trips are both new trips, they're not total trips, um, which is explained in the staff report, and so we wanted to make a clarification here. Um, and also adding the parentheticals that this excludes pass-by trips, that's also a reference onto what these trips are. Um, also condition 10, we split it into an A and a B. It used to be just that the applicant must submit a landscape and lighting plan for staff review. Um, we also are now asking that the applicant, prior to the release of any building permit, submit a traffic statement to the planning department staff verifying the specific types of proposed commercial or service land uses generating the equal or fewer to number of trips during the peak hours approved under this preliminary plan. Um, if the trips actually are exceeded, then they will have to amend the plan to ask for a greater APF. Um, this is to give them the flexibility to present us with a, some other use that might generate less trips and not have to actually have a plan amendment to do that. Um, and as such, to follow up within the staff report, um, all staff report references to AB 729 should be updated to reference CR 17665. Um, 
total tract area, I'm not sure where the 1.4 came from. It's actually 1.275. Um, and again, we've also amended the top paragraph on page 12 of the staff report. Um, further clarification that on the issue I talked about earlier with the actual trips that are how they're actually counted to, to clarify what they're getting credit for and what they're tested for. Um, there's also a reference on page 16 of the 0.26 FAR that staff had in the staff report. Um, that was another calculation error. Um, we've replaced it by saying that there should be a maximum of 0.3 FAR um, allowed in the development of the zone. Um, that concludes staff's initial presentation. Um, staff is recommending approval of the preliminary plan 1-2012-0250 as conditioned and the conditions as modified. Um, that the board approved the 7,189 square feet of right-of-way that was petitioned for the abandonment and that the staff recommends approval of the final forest conservation plan. Um, given the number of changes that have happened to the resolution and potential changes that may or may not happen at the hearing, um, we're not proposing adoption of the resolution today. We'd like a week to look over and make sure we actually have it written correctly and we'll bring it back before you on the consent agenda shortly. And because of that, concludes staff's presentation. Thank you. What's the uh, square footage of the dedication that you're asking for? I don't think yeah, that one. here I actually have the square footage. I do have, um, it's 0.37 acres. I don't have it in the square footage in the presentation. The other one was in square footage that you gave us, like 7,000 something. Oh, the dedication that you are being requested for abandonment is. No, 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 not that one, the blue. The, the, one, you, the, the one that we're abandoning. Oh, I, I gave do. They're equal. It's, it, they're both 0.37. They're both 0.37? In the area that's being rededicated, yes. Oh, they're both 0.37. Uh, you know, I understand the uh, from your report the uh, uh, legal restriction, restrictions based on what the uh, code may say, but uh, from sort of an equitable point of view, the property that's being given up is um, the fattest part of the triangle, probably with the most potential, and and it's a RMM, RMXPC, and they're getting RMXP which is sort of the most difficult part of the triangle. So it would be nice if there was some way to work. Not, I, you know, I, I, I kind of withdrew with your conclusion, but I really want to hear from the applicant. Is there some way to allow, you know, whatever flexibility we actually do have uh, to allow the development yeah. that we'd like to do to make it see, sort of make it work. But uh, sure. we, why, why, don't, why, don't we, why don't we hear from them first? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Ms. Rosenfeld. Thank you, Michelle Rosenfeld, uh, attorney representing MSQ LLC, and to my left is Mr. Mark Taubman, principal of MSQ LLC, and to my right is Mr. Mark Wildman, also representing MSQ, and Mr. Steve Crum from um, Chris Hendricks and Glasscock. And thank you. Uh, the applicant accepts all of the conditions and recommendations provided herein, with the exception of those associated with the zoning question that's been uh, called up and the FAR 
calculations, which is going to depend on the board's decision with respect to rezoning. It's our view that there actually are several several uh, grounds upon which to find that RMX2 is the proper zoning. The first, RMX2C is the proper zoning. The first is that while this project is being reviewed under the development standards of the 2004 code because it's grandfathered, it was applied for prior to October 29th of 2014, the reality is that the zoning in place, the Euclidean-based zone in place on the MSQ property as well as the adjoining Martens property is CRT, which obviously being equal, there is not a more intense or a less intense zone as between the CRT. And so the grandfathering provision pro says that if you're proceeding under the development standards of the 2004 code, you're proceeding under the standards and procedures that were in effect for October 29th. It does not say you're proceeding under the zoning that was in place on, on October 29th of two, 2014. So given the Euclidean zoning, which is in effect, as you saw on the PowerPoint, everything, everything surrounding here is CRT. This is the MSQ property. These are adjoining properties. This is the Martens property. So if, in effect, you were to zone this little portion that's being swapped for the dedication, you would create this small island of RMX2 among this larger island of RMX2C. Can I, so can I ask you just clarification on that? I want to understand what you're trying to say because you mentioned the, the old code and procedures and the new. I mean, currently that's true, the CRT and the new, but could you not have presented under the new code had, had you chosen? We could have, in which case we would have been subject to the current CRT zoning standards. Right, which is why but the CRT zone is there, which is why I'm confused. I want to ask our legal, uh, which is the ruling zone? If you are applying under the old code, does it not track with the old zone? Uh, so just make a couple points of clarification. Um, Ms. Rosenfeld is making the point, I, 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 as I understand it, that because the grandfathering provision of the new ordinance states uh, that the standards and procedures of the old zoning code are to be applied, that means that the text of the zoning ordinance in effect on October 29, 2014 is to be applied, but that you use current zones. There are a couple of reasons why, why that's not the case. One of it is, or one particular reason is because there are, there are zones now under our new ordinance that did not exist uh, as of the old zoning ordinance. So in other words, for example, if you look, take Ten Mile Creek as an example, uh, you know, there are new overlay zones in that area that were created after or, or and are reflected in the new zoning ordinance that don't exist in the old zoning ordinance. So in other words, you can't separate the zoning map that existed uh, as of October 29th, 2014, and the standards and procedures that are to be used. And they're all one and the same. Um, we was able to confirm that point as well with uh, our counsel, David Lieb, and uh, uh, Pam Dunn on, on MNCPPC staff, both of whom work extensively on the zoning code rewrite, both of whom confirmed, again, these are, these are non-separable. Um, the other point I wanted to make, I, I know Ms. Rosenfeld mentioned that there's no difference between the CRT zones currently on the, on the uh, Waters Road Triangle properties, um, which includes the two existing parcels uh, that are included in the subject property, and the property to the west. And that's also not true. 
as, as it exists today, the CRT zones that exist to the west are less intense because they allow less uh, commercial density. As I understand it, it's a CRT C2.5 uh, C, uh, to the west and C.5 to, uh, to the east. And again, Mr. Burbick can confirm that. Um, the only other point I wanted to make as well, if, if Ms. Rosenfeld's argument were the case or, or were true and you were in, you know, the board was in, in charge of uh, implementing the old standards with the, new, with the existing zones, um, the property should be reviewed as a CRT project. Um, and the last point of clarification I wanted to make, Ms. Rosenfeld suggests that the board at this time is rezoning or is zoning this right-of-way. And I'd like to point out the board does not have the authority to zone property. The, the right-of-way was zoned under the old code. It's zoned under the new code. And the question is, how do you interpret the absence of zoning shown on the, on the uh, official zoning maps? And yeah, I think I, the zoning ordinance is clear. I, I was, um, my, my question sort of, uh, assuming that uh, we follow uh, the staff and your recommendation, and, it, and they either have to reapply CRT or they have these two zones on their property. Where do we, do we have the flexibility to meet whatever their plan is so, somewhere within the, whether it's CRT or otherwise, to, get, to, to have the flexibility to let the plan that they're trying to get accomplished done because the dedication, we're getting a dedication of a road where it's two different zones, it's, you know, we, there's a we lot. We would under optional method. And we would under optional method. And well, either optional method or CRT, whether we have the flexibility to approve the plan that they are submitting, because the, I presume the reason you're, you're asking for this to happen is that you can't get your plan approved under its current form unless the two zones are, this, are RMX2C. Uh, so I'm trying to get to the uh, end. I, I understand that and I appreciate that. And if Avoid I could finish, if, if I could uh, finish my presentation, um, the 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 answer is that the the um, application of the other zone does affect the FAR as as staff is as reviewing it. Um, would you please pull up uh, page seven of the staff report? I think it'll be easier to discuss this. There are some practical components to this. Um, property that you need to understand, and that is the property, that the, the, the abandonment area that's at issue here uh, is largely located over a WSSC main. No structure can be built on that. It will be parking only um, or drive aisles, some sort of, but no vertical structures. So not only are, is the applicant making this inequitable swap, as it were, as you recognized, um, but they can't even make uh, use of that with respect to their building their building lines. In addition to that, as you also had noted, the Martens property, which has been approved next door under the optional method development, the, the building closest to this property has ground floor retail. I think this closest building is, is 160,000 square feet, 175,000 square but feet. I, I, I'm trying to get beyond the, the argument of whether it's legal to, for us to create our MX to C versus two and get to what you're trying to accomplish and see if we can approve that or, or look at it under the context either option message, CRT, or the two mixed zones rather than have this extensive argument about what the, having one zone for the whole property because I'm, you're trying to get something that's not working under the mix of the two zones, and I understand the, I, I fully see the inequities of the swap, but 
if, if our legal department is correct and our planner that there we, we just can't do it, how do we accomplish what the applicant's trying to do with that conclusion? And, and my, my response is that this application was filed in July of 2012, um, long before the current zoning was in place. There had been extensive discussions, extensive design and redesign of this project. And for purposes of what the applicant wants to achieve, the prior zone allows them better to accomplish what it is they want to accomplish. In, in terms of waivers we can grant or, or, uh, or understanding of the rules under the, the CRT or the optional method to, to recognize the, the optional method. The they, we yeah. could do it as is, I understand. Is there a way is to do that and, and, and avoid this um, um, legal argument back and forth? Because you're just trying to accomplish the plan you want. And rather than, because if we're if we're not, you know, if our legal department is correct, we don't have the flexibility to do this. My I, understanding I, I think is there's that there's a lot of equity on your side, and if there's a way to sort of grant that equity without violating the rules as our legal department sees, and, that would and, be the best solution. And and I'd like to offer another way that you can can perhaps achieve that goal, and that is that because the Martens property developed under the optional method what is being built there actually is far more intense than what is being proposed on the MSQ property. And so consequently, having been approved under the optional method, recorded that plat being under construction, they have vested their rights at that level. But our and so as between me, just the two. But that has nothing right. to do with what the code says about, but the code it says look at what is the least intensive adjacent zone, not what is the least intensive adjacent use that is developed on the site. So I don't, I don't think you're getting anywhere with that argument. And you can't do what you want to do with us either viewing it with an optional method favorable to your design. It's not presented under optional method. Or CRT favorable to your That's design. You, the only argument is, is you have to deal with the, the zone issue. No we, we, we don't think we can achieve what we want to achieve under the CRT zone. Yes, but what about the question as to presenting under optional method? Because that's where Mr. Dreyfus is headed with all of his things about exception. It's, nobody's arguing that it doesn't look like it's an, an inequitable zoning split, but that's the legal reality. So my understanding is the only way we could make those kinds of exceptions you're talking about would be if the applicant presents this to us under optional method. Is that correct? Uh, so the, the the question the board is, is is answering is you know what 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 was the zoning of this property under the old zoning ordinance and my understanding is that you are correct if the applicant were to were to take this preliminary plan and were to uh, present an optional method project they would be able the, the 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 number of uses they would be entitled to on both the RMX two and the RMX two C portions of the property would be greatly expanded it would require going through site plan however and. The, the, it, it's a design issue. The optional method provides design restrictions that are not necessarily contained in, in the RMX2C zone. And so... But if those, if those were waivable by us or adjustable by us, would that solve your problem? Here, we uh, just can't do it in the current presentation. Maybe I can make it clever and simple. It is zoned CRT. You could come in under the CRT standards. You would have to do a site plan to go along with that. 
And, that's and, and, to, by, to and, and by the way, that also addresses this issue of split zone. That's right. It's it not takes really care of a split zone. The application is being filed right. in such a way as to take advantage of an old zone. Right. But it prospectively, it 20, uh, whether it's tomorrow or 20 years from now, whoever develops a site is is going to be able. In fact, if they filed a new application, it would be under the new zoning. Right, and both there properties, would be no sliver, all of them are, there's, there's that's no, right, all this no stuff goes away under the new zoning. But but the one, one thing is it's, uh, you have to deal with us on the site plan issue, so that that's somewhat of a concern, I guess. Oh, I, but it is approvable message, under a site plan. The message I would give personally is that I'd be pretty hard pressed not to let them do a site plan that makes sense to them because of what I see as pretty inequitable not our fault situation, but where the they're giving up the best part of their property for the worst part of the property with a different zone under our interpretation and a main running right down the middle of it. So, you know, I, I would be very sympathetic to a site plan for this little piece that would understand all those uh, idiosyncrasies and, and, and be sympathetic. Now, I don't know how are the other our other board members, but I, I I'm very reluctant to wait. Well, I don't want to. If she's not done, and okay. I don't want to cut Ms. Rosefeld off, and Thank also you. the developer of the Martens property and his lawyer are here, and I don't want to get too far down the road before we give them a chance to talk. So why don't you finish, or you don't you don't have to get every argument out because I'm not going to cut you off, but draw but present what the arguments you wanted to present. Then I'm going to call the Martens uh, folks up, and then we can get into it, okay? Okay, thank you. I did want to make uh, clear for the record that when, the, when this application was filed, it included the entirety of the site, including the area to be abandoned. And the standards that were, that were identified in that application at the time were RMX 2C. So the, the application itself, the application has always been presented as uh, for review under those standards. It hasn't changed subsequent to that. So I just wanted to make sure you understood that when we filed from day one, it was our expectation that this would be reviewed under the entire property would be reviewed under the RMX 2C standards. I did, I'm sorry I didn't follow that. You're saying that, that, this, that the Martens property originally came in as a single application? Is that what you're saying? We're, we're saying that everything within the red line, the, the red boundary, uh, the, I'm sorry, within the MSQ property, which excludes that little tan part on the left, came in under the RMX2C development standards. We, we had, all, from the very beginning, expected that it would be evaluated under RMX2C. We didn't present it as a split zone application. That, okay, well, I although that just begs the question about whether you are correct or not in your... Right. Your, uh, whether your expectation was well-founded, right? So it, it's our view that both under the current zoning, we simply disagree with staff, that we can't look to the current zoning to determine which is the less intense zone. Uh, we also submit that looking at the Martens property as developed also provides a basis to show that the adjoining property is the more intense zone, as well as the equities uh, here, given what the property owner is giving up in exchange for what the property owner is receiving. And for all of those, the, the planning board is the one who has the final discretion to review and interpret the zoning code. And I appreciate that you have your staff recommendation before you, 
but it's up to you to look at the language of the code. The code does say that it's reviewed under the standards and procedures that were in effect before October 29th, 2004. The grandfathering provision does not say in it, uh, under the zoning that was in effect. In, in that case, okay, I'll, I'll come back to you. Thank you for, sure. Thank for you. Uh, drawing that to a close, but I'm not going to shut you down there. But I wanted to see, does Sorry. Mr. Brewer or his client want to speak? Good morning, Mr. Chairman, members of the board. Russ Kestel with Buchanan Partners. We're the developers of the Martens project, which we've heard and seen uh, on the screen today. Uh, it's been um, here to support this application and ask for your support and also to make a request of you. Uh, it's been three years last month that I was first before you, well, most of you and uh, got our initial approvals for the project. And uh, at that time, committed to you that we were trying to do three things in this area. Number one, a successful project that started an immediate transformation of this area uh, to hopefully facilitate a connection of Waters Road to Maryland 118 to help with the connectivity of the area and to trigger the redevelopment of the rest of this triangle area. Uh, since then, I'd like to report that uh, over the three years, it's not been easy, but we are accomplishing it. I think uh, Mr. Rosenfeld held up some pictures, but this is a building, uh, the first building that is now leasing for occupancy, multifamily building, uh, five stories. We elected the high rise over the mid rise, five story, center core, conditioned hallways, elevators, none of the open breezeway stuff close to the street. Ms. Pereira got the activated uh, streetscape with some of the individual entrances on the ground level uh, and LEED certified. So uh, I think that point number one, like I said, it's been three years, not been easy, but we're, we're delivering on that. Uh, the townhouse sales are also doing well and, and looking, looking uh, very uh, nice addition to the community. On the second point, we've also been working over the last three years to facilitate entering into a development agreement with the MSQ folks to facilitate that connection of, of Waters Road to uh, Maryland 118. The conditions of our Martens approval require us to upgrade Waters Road, dedicate right-of-way, do the improvements, but do not require us to do anything beyond repave that existing cul-de-sac. A connection to 118 is desirable to us and that's why we've committed three years working with these guys and your staff to hope to facilitate that. Uh, we do have plans prepared. We realize what the imposition would be to MSQ as you've seen on the screen. They're giving up a better geometry of their site and a more usable area of their site to get to dedicate uh, almost half of their site for this new right-of-way. And yes, you can say they pick up the abandoned right-of-way, but geez, is that, is that good or bad? 
and uh, their geometry is more difficult. The imposition of the WSSC uh, pressure sewer is, is an imposition, and now this uh, zoning imposition. So that's getting me into point three is the other thing that I had hoped to accomplish with our project is to facilitate the redevelopment of this area. This is the first application to come forward to move in that direction. And our request to you would be to give them every arrow in their quiver that you can. Uh, it's not easy these days. Uh, in general, not just with the site constraints that they've self-imposed to facilitate this road connection. So, I mean, I'm assuming this is the same picture Ms. Rosenfeld had is we are 0.73 FAR on our side, on our common side of our common property line. We are about 70 feet from the property line we will share with this development. Now that's a part of the property that they can't build on because it's the sanitary easement. But along the lines that Commissioner Dreyfus was exploring, if there's anything that you can do with an interpretation as of which use is truly, maybe it's use, maybe it's zoning, uh, I, I don't know. But that is, is, is extremely cumbersome. And we would like to see their site develop sooner rather than later. The retail space on the ground floor uh, of our building, uh, which we, we retain uh, in the apartment development, would be beneficial not only with the connection, but with their, with their development. To facilitate uh, a connection to 118, during that three-year period, there were times we gave up hope that, that this day would ever come. And we have prepared and processed through State Highway, through three reviews, a fully engineered design that would make a connection to 118 through the existing cul-de-sac. Nobody wants that. But that would be an option that would let these guys retain their full development capability under the RMX-2C their full FAR rights, and it would be the worst thing to happen for us, for you, and for them, because we don't have that full movement intersection with pedestrian connectivity to the rail station. If you can find a way that you can give them what they need, because it is an extremely difficult site, and after what they've persevered through, and what I've put up with from them, we all deserve to get this road in there, so thank you. Right, well, I, I appreciate that. I think it was my first planning board meeting that yes. we approved your yes. project the first time it around. Was. I remember it well. Mm -hmm. And I remember how you went to the high rise because you figured out the school generation rate is better, uh, actually, if you had more, a little more uh, intensity. And they had, the pictures look great, and we appreciate the quality of it you're bringing to that uh, project. So thank Team you. Work. Yeah. Thank you. And, and I, I thank you for coming and saying that too. I, s I see it, I drive by it all the time. It's a beautiful project. Glad, glad to have it. And um, I'm very sympathetic to the applicant's position. I agree with you that that seems you know, inadequate. But me being a letter of the law type of person, 
it's not a matter of discretion whether or not we say that a zone isn't what a zone is. We can, and we don't have the authority to rezone. So I am all in favor of trying to find a way to accommodate the applicant, but I, I, I for one, will not bend on the things that legally we are not supposed to do. I don't believe it's a simple matter of in interpretation about what's adjacent. It's about what the zone actually is. So from my perspective, I do understand that if you were to present under site plan, we could be as flexible you know, as possible. We could waive things and so on. And I understand we could do that under optional method or under the current zone. What I would like to know from, uh, well, from colleagues too is first from legal, it, do we have any other options? I don't believe we do. Um, that are legally sanctioned. Right, right what, what's, what's before us right now. For to me, it looks like approve it or don't according to what the staff has presented. For a standard method project under the old zoning ordinance, uh, it's our position that the board does not have any other options. Did, um, did, did the applicant ever submit a site plan that they were thinking about? Um, just to hit a couple points. This has, was submitted two and a half years ago, and very early on, staff did question the zoning of the right-of-way. This is part of why it's taken two and a half years to get before you. There's lots of other stuff involved, but that's one of the things that's been going on and on. And one of the initial comments was, if you just submit this as an optional method project and we go to site plan, then this would be fine. Um, today's the first day that staff has heard them at all be interested in the idea of having a site plan out here. Um, I think part of the concern I hear as a, a reviewer is, and I think as they've cued into a little bit, there are a lot of findings in site plan about safe, adequate, and efficient. It sort of reopens the design guidelines that we're suggesting you waive in part today because there would be no site plan. Um, and so I, I question the ability for us to not sort of relive these arguments again under site plan. I understand the board's interest in flexibility. Um, I think the reality is I'm very sympathetic to this issue, but I don't know how flexible we can be on a site plan without not doing it justice in its findings either. Okay. So and I, what I hear you not saying <laughs> is that this is the best off but you've been as flexible, we've been as, fle as flexible as we can within this envelope. I, I, th I, th I think there's the ability to be a little more flexible under site plan, but with it does come additional okay. constraints that are just different than what we've right. talked about to date. And you know, I, I have to assume they probably looked forward to that and weren't, didn't want to go down that route. Um, there are some things in the site plan that are non, uh, uh, not subjective that we could have waived. Well, well uh, for example, uh, I, I'm sure Mr. Berber is talking about the, the waiver that the uh, staff is recommending the board make in this case under 5035L uh, of the subdivision regulations. Um, it's, it's a waiver that the board can make in cases where certain provisions of a master plan are no longer appropriate. Um, that, that waiver isn't contained within the, the uh, similar master plan findings of a site plan. Um, although, again, you know, we, we wouldn't really know um, where our wiggle room would be on at site plan until we have a site plan to review. Or at least not under stan uh, standard method project. Uh, right. So uh, they have an application in front of us now. If we approve staff recommendations, can they come in with a site plan? If with they want uh, to waive it. 
that would be expedited and come back to us, or how, if, how would if, that? If they wanted or, to. Or do we reject it and they got to start me. all over again? Or it seems silly. Ms. Rosenfeld wants to talk. Go ahead. Uh, how, does, how does it going to work mechanically? I mean, I wish, in hindsight, I wish we would have had a solution recognizing all the equities and said, do this, and we will present it to the board this way, rather than leave us with this. Maybe it's your fault, maybe it's your fault. And leave us okay. with this conundrum let about her, equities. Let her let her talk. Uh, uh, Mr. Chairman, in, in light of the discussion um, and the, the comments that you've gotten from staff, we we will uh, withdraw our objections to the conditions as proposed and ask that the board approve it as recommended by staff. Okay. Well, that yes. cleans it up. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm I'm. I think you what you've heard is that we'd like to be more accommodating, but we don't see a way to do it. So. Yeah. It's they uh, there it is. Yeah, they could come back, but I don't think that's where they want to go. Whatever, well, they could, but they don't yeah. have to. But yeah. Right, and they've heard loud and clear that yeah. we'd be receptive if well, they want to do something else, but that's not, okay. you know, that's a more time and money, and, you know, that's up We've to you. We've been in the process a very yeah. long time. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Can, I, can I just make one clarification? Um, you know, if we approve the project today, staff is presented, you know, I. I don't think if they wish to go the route of a site plan later that that's a problem. I do want to clarify that they would need to amend the preliminary plan with that site plan so that we could update all of the data tables and all of the preliminary plan findings to prep it for site plan. So I'd, I want to leave that, the, that options open to them. They, they can proceed forward with the envelope and building we've got today. They can amend the plans to make it fit and then submit a site plan later. Um, yeah, sounds like that may not be uh, what they want to do, but it's uh, it's at least uh, okay. an option. Um, I'm ready to make a motion okay on the applicant's request, and I, I agree to move approval of the preliminary plan with the revised conditions as presented by the staff. Second. All in favor? Aye. Opposed? There you go. Thank good you. Good luck with your project. <laughs>